Hey, Cinefans, and welcome back to the Cinema Slayers podcast. We are doing a a an, an awesome episode for you today. We are doing Game of Thrones. Now, I know there's been a lot of controversy when it comes to the final season and especially the series finale, but we won't be directly just talking about that. We are going to be talking about the series as a whole. And as always, I am joined by Justin, Heather, and Devin. All of us are here today, so we are going to be just jumping into this. We've got a couple of topics we're going to you know, break this down for um, for you guys, so then that way it's not just like this bam, like big mess of just Game of Thrones, just throwing your face. Um, we are going to start this off with our favorite and least favorite characters for the entire show uh we'll go what is clockwise on my computer screen so devin who are your favorite and least favorite characters of game of thrones one of my favorite things about game of thrones is how well so many of the characters are developed and so asking me to pick a favorite is really hard um i think i have a personal connection or maybe a moral connection to ned stark i even when i'm about to do something politically that isn't the very smartest thing but morally it's the thing i should do i always say you know i'm ned stark i'll i'll get my head chopped off for what i believe in so he i've always had a connection with ned even though he was only in like six or seven episodes i feel like his ghost and his spirit really haunted that show kind of like ale haunted death note even after he died so I have a big connection with him, but there's other characters who I really liked. And of course I like all the fan favorites. So, um, if you, you, you can pick any of the fan favorites, Jon Snow, you know, Lyanna Mormon, um, Tyrion, all those characters were great characters, but I really think people have discounted the villains a lot. So honestly, one of my favorite characters in the entire store well, uh, show was Cersei. Cersei is one of the most complex layered, well-developed, formidable characters. And Lena Hedy's... I think it's Hedy. Is it Hedy or Hedy? Yeah, Lena Hedy's performance as Cersei was just amazing. Like, there's little stories about how she would go to conventions and, like, (laughs) you know, of course, Kit Harrington is getting all these... Everybody's signing for Kit and, you know, and then... um. You know, everybody uh, is going up to, you know, Braun and getting signatures and they're, they're going up to Peter Dinklage and getting si- signatures. And then uh, <laughs> Lena Hattie Staple, uh, it would be empty because people hated her so much. And that just shows you how fucking amazing that impor- that that performance is. It is so good. So she's definitely on there. And um, Peter Baelish. Peter Baelish. I absolutely loved it. I was happy to see him get his comeuppance, but really sad that I wasn't going to see him anymore in season seven. So Peter Baelish, really great. As far as my least favorite characters, um, all of the Sand Snakes, uh, besi- besides, um, I can't remember the main uh, Oberyn's, o- Oberyn's Boothang, his Bonnie Lass, his Dottie Bell. His significant other, his better half, she was great, but his bastard kids, mm, acting, terrible, storyline, ho-hum, and I just, oh, I just did, I've, I've watched the series twice, and I just, none of the Sand Snakes, no thank I you. I believe it was, is it Elia Martel, is that who you're yeah, talking about? that's me. Uh, Elia Martel. Elia Martel. 
Yeah, but none none of the sad snakes. I, <laughs> I no thank you. I just you're talking about being useless for the story. Uh, you know, she could have done that with some assassins, some goons. There was really no need to do anything with them. All right. I mean, I, I, I definitely get what you're saying with a lot of that stuff. And the funny thing is, is when you hear like the behind the scenes stories about uh, Lena, like everybody was like, yeah, she's just the too. nicest person in the world. Like, you know, everybody like everybody loved working with her, except for uh, what's his name? Jerome Flynn. Uh, her and Jerome Flynn did not get along. And that is Braun for anybody that doesn't know. Um, but it actually has nothing to do with the show. Yeah. Yeah. It has nothing to do with the show. It's just, they were, they dated and had a horrible breakup and she, they just could not stand each other. So that's why they were never on screen with each other at the same time. Um, but go ahead, uh, Justin, Justin, your favorite and least favorite characters for game of Thrones. Well, just like Devin was saying earlier, man, this is really, really tough because there are just so many well-rounded, compelling characters in Game of Thrones. I mean, it and and I and honestly, sometimes from season to season, I would find myself being more compelled by one character over some others. Uh, I definitely can mirror some of the same sentiments about uh, Cersei Lannister. Uh, Lena Headey did a great job, and she was somebody who I often found my who I often found myself saying, "Man, I think she might be." the most compelling character. There, there were definitely some seasons where I thought that to be true. Um, but, uh, and maybe this is a typical one that somebody says that people I know are going to say, but for me, I just love dialogue, man. I love when a character gets that good dialogue. I love when a character can deliver some convincing scenes. I love when a character really gets a chance to strut their stuff and an actor or actress really gets to flex those acting muscles and get some really great scenes. And I got to hand it to Peter Dinklage, man. I got to hand it to... Uh, Tyrion Lannister, man. I, I mean, some of the scenes that, that Peter Dinklage had, some of the lines that he got to deliver, some of the emotion that he got to show, and especially just being a character who is not the biggest character. He's not the strongest character. He wasn't put like in a position of, power per se like he wasn't one of the power players fighting for the throne per se although you could argue that ultimately uh, a lot of his influence and stuff like that he does a lot when it comes to the game of thrones and some of his decisions or indecisions or things that he decides to do definitely plays its part with a lot of the characters so i guess that point's debatable but as far as just optics you know, he wasn't like in line to capture the throne, but I thought he had some of the strongest scenes and I thought he had some of the best delivery throughout the entire throughout the entirety of this series. Um, One thing that definitely stands to mind was in season four when he is before um his family and he gets to confront um his father and he gets to tell everybody how he really feels about his family. And it was that moment where they're trying him for the death of, um, for the death of, I'm sorry, man, his name escapes Joffrey. Joffrey. Damn, damn. Can't believe I almost forgot that Joffrey. And I forget the actor. I want to say Jack Gleason. 
I hope I'm said that right. But yeah, yes. Yeah. Who, who also, you know, did very well in his role as well. But that scene where he's confronting his family, confronting Cersei, confronting Tywin, and he's talking to them. And that whole speech just before he says, I demand a trial by combat, you know, that was just such a wonderful scene. That was my favorite scene for a long, 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 long time. Then I feel like towards the end, he had some really strong scenes. Uh, the uh, One that really stands out was his scene with Jamie, where he's talking to him about what he means as a brother and why he means so much to him and why he loves him. I just thought that Peter Dinklage really got some very strong, very effective scenes. So uh, definitely, I think, and I'm just a drama guy, I like that strong dialogue. I like when two characters get to talk to each other and really display and show emotions. That's just kind of the guy I am. I'm a drama guy. So uh, Tyrion Lannister is definitely a character that stands out to me. Um, definitely him. Uh, as far as a least favorite character, man, that's a... That that's a tough conversation for me to have because there were just a lot of good characters, compelling characters. But um, man, let's see. Let me pick one because there are so many that I feel like are bottom tier. But I guess if I had to pick a least favorite, um, man, I don't know. I may have to kind of mirror what Devin said. I mean, not all of the people of Dorne. I liked Oberyn. I honestly thought when Oberyn came in, he was a breath of fresh air, I thought, in season four when he came in. But yeah, the daughters, uh, Jessica Henwick is one of them. I know her because uh, she's also in uh, um, Iron Fist as well. Her and the other two daughters, yeah, they just didn't really get to do much. I didn't feel that they had as much significance. And I thought that the acting was definitely um a little a little lacking with them um so i would say uh definitely those would probably be the least uh my least favorites as well oh and one more shout out um speaking of the sand snakes um the the mother the one who was always just like real frank and blunt uh what was her name oh i'm forgetting her Oh my gosh! What was oh, her you're, name? You're, you're not talking about the sand snakes, though, though, right? You're talking, you're talking about, about Lady Tyrell. You're yes, talking about. Yeah, I'm um, sorry, uh, Lady Tyrell. Yes, her. That was another one amazing. of my favorite freaking characters. Like she wasn't in it a long time, but yeah. every time she had a scene, she fucking kills it every time. And just some of her lines just hit so hard and just so perfect. And some of the stuff that she would say was just great. She had a lot of wonderful scenes. So I was very, very sad to see her go when she did. I enjoyed her every time. Every time she was on screen, she was wonderful. So that's another standout character for me. Oh, yeah, for sure. And she still went out really raw. Like when she's talking to Jamie and she's like, I would hate to die like your son did choking, yeah. grasping at his throat, 
And she, she just, she did the Vince McMahon, it was me. Yeah. It was me, Austin. Yeah. <laughs> like, that was a great that scene. Entire, yeah. <laughs> that, that entire scene. She took that poison. She's like, well, now that I'm going to die peacefully, I'm going to let this fucking know that I killed this. She son went out on her own terms. With a brutal, awful poison. And just that entire thing. But yeah, she went out completely on her own terms. Fa- absolutely fantastic. Um, and then Justin, I, I second that. Actually, uh, Tyrion's trial when he's when he's when he says your vicious bastard watching your vicious bastard die gave me more pleasure than a thousand lying horse that entire that's still my favorite scene in all of Game of Thrones it really is well, uh, we'll get I, to that I, we'll get to that you know. yeah we don't want to we don't want to to jump into that too soon but I I do want to make a correction real quick because it drove me nuts because it didn't sound right uh Ilaria her last name is Sand her surname is Sand. Because she was yes, a bastard. Yes, it is. Yeah, Alaria, she was a bastard. You're right. Thank you. It just it, it, it sounded wrong when you said Martell. And I was like, wait a second. Let me sleuth real quick. Yeah, because it is. She is a sand. Heather, what, what is your uh, who are your favorite and least favorite characters? Just to kind of touch base on the whole Cersei thing. I, I just think it's interesting because of all the villains that are on this show, nobody says that they hate her. You know what I mean? Like as compelling as she is and as interesting as she is as a villain, you, there's something about her that you just you can't. The show just wouldn't be the same without that character because she just is so. Yeah, I mean, she is. She's very compelling. And she just really every every scene that she does, she she kills it every time. So I just think it's interesting that um, it instead of being a least favorite character, she's a lot of people's favorite just because of the fact that she she does the character so well. And there's a lot of villains on the show that you could say, I could definitely do without them. She's not one of them. You know what I mean? Like the show just would not be the same without her. So I just think that's an interesting thing about the villains on the show. Um, but for me, um, I, I kind of have to, I mean, I have three favorite characters that I, um, that I always say are my favorites, but for the sake of this conversation, um, I'm going to, I'm going to go with Tyrion. And that's because I feel like he's, I, I kind of, in some instances, relate to him because he's a very self-aware person of the fact that, you know, I, you know, he's like, I'm not, I'm not a perfect person. I have done some terrible things. I'm like, he's just a very self-aware person and he doesn't make any apologies for it or excuses for it or try to say, oh, but I did it because of this. You know, he's just, he owns it. He's like, yep, I did that. And that was terrible, but I did and I can't change it. And I just appreciate his character for that because he's very self-aware and he has a lot of wisdom. And that part not necessarily relates to me, but <laughs> I just appreciate that he does have a lot of wisdom and he thinks through any advice that he gives and any, you know, anything that he really says, even though he just likes to talk. I feel like he puts a lot of thought into what he says when he's giving advice, you know, as the king's right hand and all of that. So I just think, like Jason was saying, he had a lot of the really strong dialogue and a lot of um, you do see a lot of development in him because he's kind of like the last hope of the good in the Lannister family, mostly. So I appreciate his character for that. And I mean, but it's hard, though, too, because I really do love Brienne. I think Brienne of Tarth is amazing. She's just this really strong, determined, very disciplined woman who just lives by what she says she's going to live by. She lives by her word. She's got a good heart, you know, she's, she's just awesome, you know, and she's such a warrior. And I just really enjoyed her character a lot throughout the whole show when she was on it. And every season I was like, oh, no, 
she's going to die. And it made me sad because I was like, no, I don't want her to die. She's such a strong character, you know. Um, and thankfully that, you know, didn't happen. But um, so she was also, you know, a favorite of mine. And I will say the one character that I totally did not at all expect to really like all that much, but really just exponentially went up in my ratings in the past couple of seasons. That is just one of my favorites now is Arya. I think Arya is amazing. Um, everything that she did is just like solid stuff. So yeah, but for the sake of this conversation and as a whole over the whole show, I would say Tyrion is my favorite. I definitely agree with you about Brienne. Like that was another one of uh, my personal favorites. I really liked her. I was always rooting for her. Anytime she had a fight scene or something like that, I'd be, you know, I was always kind of on the edge of my seat. Yeah, Brienne, get him, get him, you know. And uh, the, the fight with the hound made me nervous because I was like, Oh my gosh, can she beat him? Mm-hmm. You know, that th- that was one of my more favorite fights that was in the series. But yeah, she was tough, man. And she was just um, a very formidable character. And I appreciated her morals and her values and what she stood for and the consistency of that. So yeah, she was yeah. definitely another character that I appreciated. And I mean, who doesn't like Arya? I mean, that whole story arc, I mean, that is like, if you're a fan of like swordsman films or martial art films and stuff like that, you know, that that character that starts young and is, you know, goes through these tra- these traumatic experiences and then is determined to change her fate and her fortune and then just becomes this great warrior, this great assassin, you know, goes through this training, gets this mentor. I mean, you know, if you're a fan of any of that stuff, that is that character. But the way they did it, the way they had her grow throughout the series, the way the some of the confrontations that she had. Yeah, I really like that character, too. It was a nice call back to just some of those things that we're used to, like in samurai martial arts, uh, you know, ninja almost kind of culture and story. So, yeah, she was definitely a, a great part of the cast. Yeah, and it's it's just cool, too, that, um, I mean, honestly, Arya Loki was probably one of the best, you know, fighters that they had. <laughs> and so was Brienne. And I think it's cool that the two people that you probably least expect to be the best fighters to be on your side. And they were this, this child, essentially, and just this woman, you know, and so it was just, it's kind of cool that they did that. I think Game of Thrones is really good about making the women characters very strong and determined characters, whether it's in the fighting or in their ruling of the kingdoms or whatever it is. They've always been really good about making those characters very strong, which is different than what you expect from a show where it's, you know, all the fighting and the violence and the, you know, ruling kingdoms and stuff. You just don't expect that it's going to be a lot of the women that are so powerful in those settings. So I think it's cool how they did that. Um, but I will say my least favorite character it's also so hard because on a moral standpoint because of how terrible they both are ramsey and uh joffrey are real neck and neck on that one like (laughs) i also really love um ned stark and when you know when you just see how joffrey is just delighted at the fact that he's about to get his head chopped off that was that was jarring and chilling how much he enjoyed that it was terrible. So I'm just like, uh, these characters. But 
even with that, they're also, again, they're compelling enough to be like, what are they going to do next? What's going to happen to them? So for that point, I will say a character that I just found annoying and really I could have done without would be uh, the waif. <laughs> the waif yeah, with the faceless uh, people the that, <laughs> that, yeah, that Arya was fighting with. She was just annoying and dumb and I just did not like her in any sense. Like, yeah, she was a good, you know, fight against Arya. You know, she was, she gave her a run for her money and whatever, but just in general, her character was just like, you know, get out of here. I'm done with you. <laughs> like, so I would say on this, on the standpoint of like, just could have done without the character, the waif. But if I'm talking about just how terribly evil and upsetting characters make me, Ramsey and Joffrey kind of take the cake on that one. And I just wanted to, because uh, I think this is just a good time to put honorable mentions because there's just so many. Um, Heather, you're talking about Arya, and that is 100%. She's one of the best characters in the show. Jason, I really love your comparison to watching mm-hmm. her journey, like watching Kung Fu, The Legend Continues in Westerverse. It's really cool. Yeah. It's kind of like that, yeah. which is really awesome. <laughs> um, but I don't think you can tell Arya's story without telling the Hound story. And man, he's another one of the characters that was just so layered and and so well developed and who went on this huge journey. Like first you're like, oh, my God, the hound is the worst. And then by the end, you're just like, don't die, Sandor, (laughs) please. And so uh, shout out to him. I I will be doing this quite frequently over the podcast because they're all linked together and he he was he was another one of my favorite characters watch and i have one other i'm going to mention but not right now but yes i i agree totally and ramsey is worse than joffrey without a doubt because who is worse than ramsey without a doubt oh yeah because he because he he not only was he sadistic but he was intelligent and he was making big political moves. So Joffrey was just kind of vicious and he was in the position he was in, but he never really, as far as like putting laws forth and stuff like that, he really did. He was too preoccupied being a vicious bastard, you know, but Ramsey was making moves, you know, Ramsey was maneuvering himself to make the boat as one of the, most powerful houses in Westeros. And if he would have had his way with Sansa, he would have. So, you know, that is, um, it's fortunate that he met his demise, you know, in the grand, in the, in the scheme of the show. But yeah, he definitely was worse than Ramsey than Joffrey. My bad. Yeah. My, my two characters are probably going to be a little bit more left field than your guys. Um, so for me, my favorite character would have to be my boy, Podrick the Roderick Payne. Love that guy. I love him. I loved. I love him. Everything he was on. I loved that stupid ass little fucking grin he had on his face half the time. Loved it. Every time he was on screen, I was just delighted. I mean, you have that whole story with him and the prostitutes and, you know, they gave him his money back. (laughs) And I loved how for like six or seven episodes, anytime they showed Podrick like walking, there would always be some random person like behind like in the background like like two women like pointing at him and talking to each other like whispering to each other like all the time and you know and then i loved it like you he really did learn from everybody he was around too because you know very early on with uh podrick and Tyrion, they're sitting there and they're doing this whole thing and you know podrick's getting drunk with Tyrion, and you know Tyrion's like well if everybody could you know if it was easy to be drunk 
all the time than everybody would do it. And, you know, he just kept filling Podrick's cup up. And then you like fast forward to the last season and, you know, Brienne's like, oh, you can have half a cup. And Tyrion starts pouring the wine and it like he feels it so full that it overflows. And then him and right. him and Tyrion just kind of share a look like Podrick and Tyrion just share a look of we know like, <laughs> yeah, you know, just like little things like that. Like and, you know, and then he sings and, you know, in the last season and everything like that. And so it, it gave me a theory on why the prostitutes gave him his money back. And I think that's because his penis can sing, too. <laughs> so as well as he does or <laughs> yes like he harmonizes with himself while having having sexual relations and <laughs> i think that's why they gave him his money back because that's just a wondrous thing and that's just the only logical conclusion from anything i've seen in Go game of thrones and everything like that uh i think his i think his uh you know pod the rod's rod was a azora high i think that was the prince that was promised i think him living through everything <laughs> was proof that you know he delivered you know westeros from the darkness and you know everything like that i just think everything about that character i just always loved because to me more than a lot of other characters there was weird or not weird but there was a lot of behind the scenes things or like or in the background things that were happening all the time with that character and i just loved those little touches especially when it came to his character and also like whenever you, if you want to really break down his character like this kid who comes from the house pain who his his uncle was the executioner. His uncle's the one that killed Ned Stark. You know, his uncle was kind of a bad guy for the most part. I mean, he was technically just doing his job, but he's, you know, considered a bad guy and all this other stuff. And then you have Pod, who is just this very sincere and loyal character. You know, he just constantly, you know, like I said, he wants to learn from the best people, you know, and he was one of the first people to like truly show Brienne that things were different. Like with him, because she was like, you know, I'm so sorry that, you know, you're my squire. And he's like, I'm not. And you're like, shit, you took down the hound. Like, I'm happy that I'm your squire. Like, I feel like I can learn more from you as far as being a knight than anyone else and all this other stuff. And so he just had always had these very sincere moments. He always he always had these really funny moments. And just any character that had a connection to him, you always felt that genuine connection. And I loved it. So I will always. And then I also love that little touch at the end in the last season, whenever, you know, all the the allied forces going up against the uh, the Night King and stuff like that. All of a sudden you see that like Pod is a very confident fighter. Like he's just, you know, teaching some people stuff like that. And he's, you know, he's acting like he's brawn against most people. He's just like, whatever. And like pushing them like, come on, bro, like get better. <laughs> um, so I just I always love Pod. I was really, really hoping he was going to end up on the Iron Throne. And like narrative be damned, that's still who I was hoping for at the end, because I think that if he <laughs> led Westeros, the country would be better. But um, and when it goes to least favorite characters, this is this is I'm, I'm probably going to get some backlash for this. But honestly, for me, it was Hodor. I always fucking hated Hodor. He was just annoying. And I understand that that was kind of the point of the character and stuff like that. But I was just always I just was so tired of it. So when he finally fucking died, it was just this big like sigh of relief. <laughs> for me in the show like i was like man i can finally start enjoying the scenes with with brand in them because hodor won't be there anymore to just annoy the fuck out of me all the time like everybody was acting like he was like fucking chewbacca and that like it was endearing that nobody understood what he was saying but then he would understand other people no he's not chewbacca he's 
He's a fucking Ewok is what he was. He was fucking wicked in the Ewoks movies, <laughs> not even in Return of the Jedi. He was wicked from the Ewoks movies is what he was. And I just can't tell you how relieved I was when he died. Damn. But, well, you have to <laughs> at least admit that that reveal was pretty cool, though. Like when you find out why he's saying that, you have. To, I thought that was a cool reveal. I thought that was cool, man. I understand the reveal, but at the same time, I think it's a real big stretch to get from hold the door to Hodor like they did. Um, And also that whole ability to affect things in the past and stuff like that. Like that went nowhere. That's the only time. Yeah, it went nowhere. And I don't know. Fucking nowhere. Oh, yeah. We'll get the brand. Yeah, we'll get the brand. I'm sure. (laughs) <laughs> well, no, no, no. I'm not even talking about that because I the the problem with that is is I don't know if that's a George R. R. Martin problem or if that's a double D, a a D and D problem. It's ultimately it just it didn't matter, and unless that was the whole point of it, unless that was the crux of the situation, like that was the lesson needed to teach Bran that you can't go back and affect things in the past. But then at the same time, you can argue via like Back to the Future argument that that was essentially what was always going to happen type of situation like that he was always destined to go back into the past and always fuck up Hodor because Hodor was already fucked up in that timeline so there's all this huge thing with that and all these different things that can mean all I know is that thank god that character died I probably would have stopped watching it at the end of season 7 if Hodor was still in there like I know he died in season 6 but I don't know if I could have made it much further with Hodor in there, especially because Bron does, or not Bron, Bran does become an important character. So if every time Bran was doing some three-eyed raven shit, you would just have Hodor going to Hodor. I would have just fucking lost my shit. I would have just lost it. I would have hated it. And thank God he's dead. That's all I'm saying. I'll end it on that. Well, Sterling, just in response to the hate of Hodor, I just have one argument. Hodor, 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 Hodor. Hodor, 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 and Hodor, 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 Hodor. Oh no, he's probably completely cut that out. No, no, I'm going to leave all that in because, as far as I'm concerned, all he said was, "Sterling, you are 100 absolutely right, and your argument was completely infallible, and I'm just going to change my opinion on everything." And Hodor was the worst character. That's exactly what Devin said in Hodor Knees. Nope. You know what I said. And everybody else knows what I said. The center fans have been compelled by my Hodor speech. That way, the one more thing about Hodor, though, there was a funny ass video or there was like a little. No, it wasn't a meme. It was a video going around and somebody acted like he wrote a book and they were like, this book is available now in stores. You got to get it while it's hot. And it was Hodor's <laughs> biography. And he starts opening pages and it's just nothing but Hodor. It's just Hodor, 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 Hodor. He turns the page and it's just nothing but pages <laughs> and pages of Hodor. And it was hilarious. And like some of the comments yeah. were great because like I was reading some of the comments and they were like, one guy was like, man, it's crazy because 
here where he says Hodor, 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 you understand that he's hasn't really progressed as a person yet. But later on, on page six hundred and seventy, when he says Hodor, 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 you totally understand the progression that this person has made in his life. And it was just hilarious, like how people were just commenting, like it was this great book, and it was a, uh, it was pretty funny. So I just thought I had to throw that in there. <laughs> nice. All those people that did that were assholes. <laughs> I thought it was hilarious. I want to say I'm very pro Podrick too. Thank you for picking him. That was that was a good one. Podrick was is great. He you yeah, know he's even awesome. as a character his growth and in he was a bit of subtlety in such a grandiose show uh with so much spectacle he very, he was he was very much very nuanced but if you were paying attention to the background you saw you saw your boy Padre coming up I agree with that too cuz I think and he's so young too and so he was just doing stuff that you know young kids do like just kind of being you know himself just doing what he does and it just worked like he had those genuine connections because he was just you know still learning things and trying to be his own person. And at that age, you know, he's trying to figure out who he is. And, and I think that it was just cool that like he, he was funny and subtle because he was a little kid, you know, he was just kind of, you know, doing what young, what young boys do, I guess, you know, I just think that he was very real in his portrayal of that character. It was a very relatable person because he was just a person who wasn't like trying to win the throne. Like most of the people he wasn't trying to, you know, like, he wasn't doing any shady business. He was just being a normal person. So I don't know. I just thought that was cool. So with that, we, we, we can move on now to our next segment, which will be uh, what, what our favorite scenes were like a favorite scene or a favorite moment um, from game of Thrones. We won't necessarily do a least in this, unless you, you know, you feel like you need to do a least, but I'll, I'll start this off. And uh, so for me, my favorite scene or moment in game of Thrones was, when John executed uh, Jano Slint, um, I loved that entire scene because, you know, they're all sitting in the the mess hall and they're all, you know, eating and drinking and all this other stuff. And, you know, John's it's he you know, he's just kind of new to being the the commander of the Night's Watch. And, you know, they're all but they're all kind of having a jovial time. And, you know, they're doing the whole like ginger jokes and stuff like that for the redhead, you know, and he's all like, oh, it's time for a latrine, pl- uh, a new latrine pit to be dug. And, um, you know, some of the the people that were against him thought that it was going to be him that, or it was going to be them that would have to go do that and all this other stuff. And the, you know, John kind of turns it around on everybody and he's like, Oh, that sounds like a good job for a ginger and send some random redheaded character to go do it. And so, you know, that was really nice and everything like that. And so, and then, you know, he, uh, gives Janos a, uh, a job to, you know, command and rebuild one of the, the side castles uh, along the wall. And he was like, man, fuck you. I'm not going to go do that. And he's like, I'm a knight and all this other shit. It was just really anti him. And then all of a sudden he's like, well, he's like, that's I'm not asking, you know, I'm giving you a, an order, you know, as your Lord commander. And he's like, fuck you. And so John's like, all right, take him outside. And everybody's like, he's, you know, like fighting people and all this. He's like, whatever. And so these people go and, you know, they're about to like, like get him and like Alistair Thorne standing in his way. And everybody's like, uh Oh, is Alistair Thorne going to revolt right now? And then Alistair just like steps aside and Janos. And that's when Janos has that, like I done fucked up moment. 
Like he's, he's got that look on his face of fuck. And so, you know, they take him outside and everybody goes outside, but John is still sitting at the table, just kind of stoic for a second. And then he just takes a, another swig of mead, goes out, just gets his sword. And it's like, you know, and like, and, and Janos is just sitting there whining, be like, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And there's all this other stuff. And then he just straight up cuts off his head. Oh, I fucking loved it. I think that what really sealed the scene for me is when everybody's outside and John is still sitting there. He hasn't moved anything like that. Just takes that, that real big gulp and just goes for it. I really just loved the way they set it up and the way, especially that Kit Harrington portrayed that scene. I just, that scene is just always stuck in my head. I always loved that part. And I just, anytime I think of just the best moments of Game of Thrones, that's just always, always on my mind with that. That is a very powerful scene. And, you know, I had said earlier in the podcast about how Ned Stark's ghost kind of haunted the entire series and his morals and his values. And it really harkened back when they found the Nightwatch deserter who was running from you know, a legitimate threat of the White Walkers. But Ned sentenced him to death, regardless of the information, and that's what's going to happen. And, you know, Janos, he really did plead. He he opened up and he was like, I'm afraid. I, I've always been afraid. That's why I don't want to go. And John was just like, well, you ain't got to worry about going no more because I sentenced you to death. I think that was really great. And it, and it showed so many layers of John, his ability to lead. You know, Malister Thorne had been had been a thorn in the side the entire time. And he promoted him. And he, he didn't embarrass him. He didn't gloat. He didn't give him any reason to disobey him or betray him at all. He was always fair no matter what. He respected him and and he 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 was a great leader. But in that that also showed that he would not be trifled with. He would not be taken advantage of and he would not be disrespected. And if you disobeyed a direct order from him, your life was forfeit on the wall. So in that one scene, you got to see so many layers of his leadership ability of the life that he led, had led up to that point and what he was willing to do to be the best Lord commander that he could be. So that is an absolutely fantastic scene. I concur. Yeah. It really does show like the type of person that John was, you know, and that he very much was regardless of whose son he ended up being and everything like that. In a lot of ways, he was still just Ned Stark's son. And that's what I loved about that scene. All right, Heather, your turn. Favorite moment. Um, I'm probably going to be like that super cliche person in this one. But honestly, I really loved Arya killing the Night King. I thought that that was such an amazing scene. Uh, I mean, just the whole thing leading up to it, like the, the score in that episode alone also was just really beautiful and amazing. And just the buildup of, you know, like for me, some people probably didn't maybe see it coming. I honestly didn't. I honestly, I think the way they set it up was great because I honestly had no idea what was about to happen. And for most of that episode, you know, you know, Arya is going off to do something because she just ran out. She's like, oh, not today. And then she runs out and then she's not in it for the rest of the show until the very end. And I absolutely just, I, she was out of sight, out of mind in that moment because of everything going on. And I just totally forgot about her for a second. And then when she comes in, from behind and she just goes at it i was like oh my gosh it was the first time in the show that i actually like out loud like screamed in excitement because i was like that was amazing 
you know, and I just didn't expect it. And there was this whole buildup of everyone thinking it was going to be John that killed the Night King because that's what they kind of made made it out to be or what it, they made it seem like they wanted it to be was John versus the Night King. And that was about to happen until the Night King did his thing and he rose everyone from the dead and, you know, got away from John. But then Arya just out of nowhere just does her thing. And it was so amazing. And I thought it was perfect. I thought it was so great. You know, and she just really came full circle and fulfilled kind of part of what her destiny was, which nobody was like expecting that that's what that meant for her, that that was her her act of, you know, this is this is what you were meant to do kind of thing. But it was. So I just uh, it was such an awesome scene and just how they shot it. it was so beautiful. And the Night King just out of nowhere, not even seeing it coming. And, um, you know, it was a real quick thing. And, you know, it, it was just kind of funny how quickly it happened. And she must have been going so fast because like no one from that army even saw her coming. <laughs> like She just ran at him and she just did the thing. It was awesome. So for me, that just that just scene just sticks out. And I don't know if it's just because it's more fresh in my mind, but I just remember it being the first time that I was completely... There's a lot of things that Game of Thrones throws at you that you don't expect coming. But for me, that one, I was I completely did not see that coming. And it was a total awesome payoff. So that is absolutely going to be my favorite, my favorite moment of the show. Um, and it's interesting because the, the last season in general, which I know we'll get to, it's not necessarily my favorite season by any means. But I think a lot of really my favorite moments have come from that last season. Um, and like, again, another one kind of like a, you know, runner up moment for me was when Brienne got knighted. I thought that was amazing. It was that whole scene where Podrick's singing, they're all kind of together in that room. And then, you know, Jamie's transition of he's become this really awesome guy and he knights Brienne and she gets that thing that she's wanted for so long. That was also a really, really great moment. But man, Arya killing the Night King was so epic, you know? So that's definitely my favorite, uh, my favorite moment for sure. I'm really kind of happy you brought that scene up because it gives us a chance real quick to talk about whether or not it's a Mary Sue moment. And for anybody that doesn't know um, what a Mary Sue is, uh, a Mary Sue is a it, it historically it comes from a Star Trek fan fiction back in the day. Uh, there was a Lieutenant Mary Sue. And in the Star Trek fan fiction, she is on the Enterprise and she just no matter what situation in the story that the enterprise and their crew is uh, like facing, she is always the one with the ability to fix it. So whether or not, you know, they have to outsmart somebody, it's her that outsmarts them. Um, When it's, they have to have a tactical thing. She's the one that has the tactical knowledge. Like she's the one character that no matter what situation she's, she is the solution. And so that has been uh, co-opted kind of like jump the shark from happy days to uh, mean like a female character that is just badass or just effective uh, for the sake of being effective in a way uh, or having an ability just for the sake of be, uh, having an ability and all this other stuff. And, you know, you've he- heard that a lot uh, recently when it comes to like Ray from from Star Wars and uh, um, and Arya, especially in this last season, they were like, oh, well, she was just a Mary Sue with that. And my biggest problem with with calling that a Mary Sue or calling her a Mary Sue in that moment is the fact that like when had she not been training to assassinate people like in the last few years? Yeah, I was like, that is specifically her story arc was being an assassin. So like, why is her assassinating somebody all of a sudden 
like an ability or or a trait that she hadn't shown before or that wasn't really developed or anything like that when it came to that moment i was like that's everything that, that like what since season five on had been leading yeah, toward i agree yeah. with that no I, I think that you're absolutely right i think you were very reserved and very um concise in your explanation of why she's not a mary sue but to me to be honest with you we've talked about this a whole bunch of times and this is just some frail male ego stuff man i just how can you call Arya a mary sue she has watched nearly the entirety of her family be slaughtered not die not get killed get slaughtered she'd been beaten and stabbed she lost her vision she has been near death more times than you can count and she has become a proficient and well-versed warrior and you've been here with her since she hit the target when she was a little girl and ned stark even had a story to back that up when he was watching her try to hit that target and practicing and practicing and practicing so she could hit it when she was really small because they wouldn't let her train with her brothers. And so to call her a Mary Sue, to say that she's simply effective and she just fixes everything, one, that didn't fix everything. That didn't end the series. There was much work to be done. And Arya, in the end, ends up taking herself out of the role of being this vengeful assassin so she can go and explore and, and live a life that's not full of death and sadness and sorrow. She has a fantastic arc that really culminates in probably one of the best endings in the show. And I just can't believe people would ever marry Sue her because their guy didn't get to kill the Night King. It's just so it's so asinine to say. And so not only is it asinine, but it's cliche and it's predictable. Anytime there's a raw female character doing some rawness and they take out somebody who is a main threat, the Mary Sue thing gets thrown out. People act like Luke Skywalker. They showed an entire movie of him training and but really it wasn't an entire movie. He got raw really fast too and he's not a a Jeffrey Miller or whatever the fuck. There's no, there's not even, there's not even a term for guys who do that because there's so, there's so many of them throughout all of fiction and media. What about Goku? Goku is a Mary Sue. He's effective for the sake of being effective. He just has another form or another level, but nobody says that. I think people who watch this show haven't been paying attention this show rarely gave you what you wanted and when it did give you what you wanted it came out of cost and this situation was no different and the amount of detail that they went in through like right before that jump happens you see one of the lieutenant white walkers hair like swoosh in the wind and that was little aria fucking just booking ass right past them yeah. like running her heart out so she can do that jump little bits of detail like that and they just dismiss it 
so haphazardly and sloppily. It, it, it infuriates me. No, Arya is not a Mary Sue. Go watch the series again. You've been with her for eight seasons. You watched her grow to this moment. And they even gave you a nice little setup when she sees Melisandre after she's been broken yet again. That was an excellent callback to that conversation. A- excellent callback. Excellent. So well crafted. But old John didn't get to kill the Night King, so now it's this whole season is bullshit. Man, fuck you, man. Well, all I was going to say about it is that um, I, I, I'm pretty much in y'all's camp with that when it comes to Arya. I'm totally in agreement. I think that there were enough examples given throughout all the other seasons, and there was enough story and there was enough time spent with her as a character to understand why she was capable of doing something like that to the Night King. They showed her training. They showed we got to see everything that she went through. We knew that she was a proficient assassin. And even if you wanted to come from the perspective of, well, she might have been good at putting on disguises, sneaking up on people and stuff like that. But would she have had the ability to do that to the Night King? Well, they also showed that she was a capable fighter when it came to even just Facing somebody straight up. She was also a great swordsman because that scene where she was fighting with Brienne and they were sparring, she could have killed Brienne. You know, had her, if they were really fighting, they kind of showed that, man, she has the skill. She would have, she could have beaten her. You know, she definitely had the skill, the speed, the ability to hang with. Somebody like Brienne, who is one of the best fighters, warriors, swordsmen, woman on the show. So I think that they did enough. There were enough scenes that you could go back to and say all of these were scenes that showed Arya's collective strengths, everything that she could do, the ability to move quickly and things like that. So I disagree. I can't really call Arya a Mary Sue based on what we were given. I mean, I get maybe if some fans felt like from a story standpoint, yes, it seemed more like Jon Snow's destined fight based on the optics of the story. Yes, he was the one always worried about the Night King. He was the one always talking about the Night King. He was the one that had those standoffs with the Night King. He was the one that had those interactions with the Night King. So from an optics standpoint, I could see maybe a fan going, man, I just they just made me expect that confrontation. And that wasn't what I got. So I can understand it maybe on that end. But as Devin was saying, Game of Thrones is a show that tries to give you something you don't expect. They try to give you something that's different. They try to give you something that's not so predictable. And I agree that ultimately, yes, from an optic standpoint, I can understand that a fan's perspective on that, but I liked this. It was more unpredictable. It, 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 it kind of came out of nowhere, which is how, which is what Arya does best. That's what she does. She comes out of nowhere. She has those disguises. She knows how to sneak and she's very stealthy in the way that she fights and kills. So I think it was, it was good. I, I liked it. You know, it was, I thought that was well done. So I'm definitely in agreement with y'all about her. Definitely not a Mary Sue with what we were given. I mean, I, I understand not liking that she was the one that did it, but just the automatic trying to disqualify it by calling a Mary Sue 
is where all of a sudden, I, like, I have an issue. Like, you cannot like that they did it. I get that because, like you said, if you have the expectation that it's John's journey, all this other stuff, that's fine. But just to be like, oh, I didn't like it. Mary Sue. <laughs> That's where you end up crossing the line with it because and I want to touch on something that that Devin said earlier when he brought up when he brought up Star Wars and Luke Skywalker, because if there was an, ever a Mary Sue moment for a male character, that would be Luke Skywalker destroying the fucking Death Star in the first movie, because his whole experience with doing it is just saying, oh, I used to shoot some womp rats <laughs> in a canyon back home all the time. So all of a sudden that means he's qualified to shoot fucking the was it? the the fucking torpedoes into the death stars exhaust board and he uses the force with it which how many times did he legitimately practice the force in the first movie like you know he can't even like pull an x-wing out of the uh out of the swamps of dagobah but he can you know guide torpedoes with the force you know laser torpedoes yeah seriously like come on I mean, and he made them 90 degree turn and it was fast. He didn't too. Even that shoot. was like, whoosh, like, yeah, he did. He didn't even shoot directly into the port. He made it 90 degree turn shot like those torpedo. And it wasn't that he made the shot. He made the torpedoes turn 90 degrees. Like all of a sudden they get there and they just went swoop, straight down. And I'm like, come on. Like that is more of a Mary Sue moment than anything with Arya in that moment. Yeah, but see, Luke Skywalker is a man, though. So he's a he's a man. So it's not a Mary Sue because Mary Sue is <laughs> a course. woman, Sterling. That's what you're missing. <laughs> well, that was a Marty Sue then. Yeah, I mean, and the only other thing I I wanted to say about the Arya thing is she's always had a specific purpose in what she was doing. She's had a mission since she decided to be an assassin. You know, she had people she wanted to kill. She had things she wanted to do. She has never just been like on a whim, like, yeah, yeah, maybe I'll just uh, try and kill the Night King. <laughs> like, she's never been that person. She's always been very specific about her mission and what she's wanted to do and her being stealthy and being sneaky and being able to do those things. And, you know, even just her moving, moving around so, so quietly when she's in that, um, that room with all of the White Walkers and, just everything she does is very precise and very thought out. And so that's why it just, it shouldn't have felt, I mean, I'm glad that it felt like a surprise moment because I think it made it more effective, but it shouldn't be surprising that she was able to do that and that she did do it because she's very, like, like Sterling said, you know, she was trained to do that kind of thing. And she's not just like, oh, well, if no one else can do it, I guess I'll do it. She's always in her mind had like, all right, this is what, I need to do. This is what I have to do and I'm going to do it. So that's why, yeah, I feel like definitely, definitely it's, it was for a purpose and um, she's always just been someone that has a mission. Justin. Okay. So, and, um, and that was definitely a good pick. Y'all are definitely talking about some great moments from the show. And this one is probably going to be cliche too. Cause man, this was tough for me. I was sitting here thinking, what is my favorite moment? out of this entire show. And man, I have a lot of great moments that I just absolutely loved in the show. A lot of great fights, a, a lot of just great moments of dialogue and things like that. But in the end, I guess I have to go with the scene that I have watched the most. Uh, it's a scene that I have constantly gone back and watched over and over again. And I'm pretty sure that it's going to sound a little cliche, but 
let's talk about the Red Wedding real quick. Yeah. Like, uh, I mean, I think that this scene, b- b- because for one thing, going back to Ned Stark's death, that th- that was shocking. And it really just kind of set the tone for what this series is. You know what I mean? I felt like that scene is also important because it was really kind of that scene where you go, man, the characters that you like and the people that you like, you know, it just gave you that feeling that no one is safe. It just kind of gave you that feeling that, man, dude, that was that that was kind of the main good guy of this season. And he's dead now. And it was a shock and it was a surprise. But it was also so compelling because then you were just like, man, well, if he's dead, where's this thing going to go? And I feel like the red and I and, and coming out of that Ned Stark death, I was like, how are they going to top that? Like, who? is going to go or what is going to happen that could possibly top that. And that's kind of how I left that um, opening season with Ned's death. And then we got to the Red Wedding. And my God, the Red Wedding. I mean, after everything that you saw with Mother Stark, with Rob Stark, um, him get, getting married and had of having a baby on the way and everything with Walder Frey and breaking that promise to Walder Frey and some of the decisions that were made with the battle plans and things like that. So you could see that Rob Stark and his leadership, there was things happening. And there were clues given that maybe he wasn't making the best decisions. But when everything culminates and that music, uh, the reigns of Kastmir, I, I believe, is that the name of the song that they started playing? The reigns of Kastmir. Yeah. Yeah. Reigns of Kastmir. That when that starts playing and and Catelyn has that look on her face and all of a sudden they, you know, they just start murdering all of them. And then her acting, uh, Mother Stark, that acting that she did towards the end of that scene where she's begging Walder Frey for her son's life, please spare my son and everything like that. I mean, the acting that was on display in those moments, I feel is some of the best acting on the show. And just how shocking that was how traumatic that was how memorable that was how that sort of changed the landscape of the show it it really was kind of that moment it i mean if the ned stark death didn't do it for you if that execution didn't do it for you then this really was just like uh it, it it was just like it left a pit in my stomach and i was like my goodness man this show is not afraid like this show is going to take chances this show does not care about your feelings and 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 that is just a scene that i find myself going back and revisiting just because of the way it made me feel at that time. And some of the craziest things are to see some of the public reactions, like people who saw that for the first time reacting to it, or people would have these Game of Thrones parties and stuff, and they would show that video footage of all them kind of reacting to that scene and stuff like that. And sometimes, you know, who knows how many of those were rehearsed or whatever, you know, it's not like you could ever know were they really in the moment when that happened, but still that scene, that result just had such an impact. And there's just something kind of traumatic, man, about seeing a pregnant woman 
who had a baby on the way, just just the the repeated stabs to the pregnant belly and then that just that final slit of the throat uh, from Mother Stark. I mean, that scene, man, that was just to me, that was a game changing scene for this series. So that that definitely sticks out as probably my most memorable and probably um, uh, one of my uh, favorite scenes definitely would have to be that one. And then a close second was the, the, the Tyrion scene where he's at court that we talked about. That was definitely a runner up for me. And then the mountain versus uh, uh, Oberyn is another one that sticks out in my mind. I love the way he was fighting um, the mountain. It reminded me of kind of like soul caliber or something, the way he was using the staff and, you know, I'm just a huge, Huge video game fan, and I love all the swords and stuff like that, the sword play and stuff. So Oberyn using his speed and stuff, and you got the big mountain and you know that face pop at the end of that. That's another one that really uh, sticks out in my mind. But definitely at the top of that list, I'm gonna have to give it to the Red Wedding. Little Keelig versus Astroth, eh, Justin? Yep, exactly. That's kind of what that <laughs> reminded me of. Yeah, for sure. Devin, what about you? Your turn. Well, I kind of, in my excitement, ruined mine, but I've had some time to recover. So I'll say that the Tyrion, uh, the Tyrion's trial scene is probably, as far as acting, one of my absolute favorites. But when I'm speaking of favorite scenes of a series, I'm thinking of something that encompasses and gives you the feel of the series or something that impacts the series greatly. You know, like Jason said with the Red Wedding, that is something that is very impactful because there was a turn. There was a turn that it showed the bravery of Game of Thrones. It showed the world of Westeros and how treacherous it could be. It showed the complexity of the political maneuverings because I will say this till I die, that Game of Thrones is still a taught political drama above all other things and a, 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 a critique on society as a whole. I will continue to say that over and over again. It's about class. So when you see scenes like that and the, the social media outcry that happened after the wed reading, I mean, I know so many people who just started watching Game of Thrones because everybody was flipping out. I think that's when Game of Thrones became a cultural phenomenon. Yeah, I honestly do. Yeah, is the yeah. red, red wedding made it a cultural phenomenon? So, but me, I'm all about the overarching narratives, and I'm all about the character development, also. And to me, there are not too many pure evil or pure good characters in Game of Thrones. Most people are gray in Game of Thrones, and I believe when the gray really began to show was in one scene in particular. So this goes back to, I wanna say, the Red Wedding happens at the end of three, right? Yes. Uh, ninth episode yeah, ninth of three. episode of three, okay? So during the Red Wedding, this is actually when Jamie and Brienne are in each other's company for the first time because she's to transport Jamie back to King's Landing to try to use him as a negotiating tool to get Caitlyn's daughters, Sansa and Arya back. Um, and so this is Jamie and um, 
uh, Jamie and Brienne and they're traveling and, and, and Brienne hates Jamie. He is the King Slayer. He is a vile human being. As an audience, you know that he puts Brand out of that window. You know, you know that he is having a torrid, incestuous affair with Cersei. Uh, you know, you know very much about Jamie. And Jamie is a Lannister, and the Lannisters are very much bad people, as you will find out very soon. Who should not be trifled with? And they go at it so much in the series during this journey. Not not the series, but during the journey, and they get captured. And they're captured by some of Rob Stark's bannermen at the time. And Jamie loses his hand and he's taken to, I believe, Roos Bolton. And Roos is like, what are y'all doing? Like, you can't be hacking off Lannister limbs. You know, I've been doing some shit on the side. <laughs> you about to mess everything up. We didn't know that at the time, but that's why he was being very nice to Jamie Lannister when 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 uh, he got to the Boltons, wherever the Boltons were. I can't remember exactly where they were before they were at Winterfell. But Brienne and Jamie go to take baths and Brienne's talking about honor and duty and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, all of that night shit. And Jamie talks about the Mad King and he's like, you're talking about your service and your loyalty. But what if you're in service to a monster and he goes about how, you know, the Mad King was putting wildfire all over the cities, burning everyone and killing everyone. And he's like, what was I supposed to do? Let him burn the entirety of Westeros so I could be honorable and do my job and keep my oath. And it's it just that that scene in particular really brought in the gray. And that took Jamie Lannister from being this. He's an evil dude. He's a bad guy. He's a sister fucker, whatever. And you sympathize with him. And the layers began to be added. And after that, the layers began to be added to a lot of characters like Cersei. And a lot of layers got added to Varys and, and, and Peter Baelish and all of those villains. I think that's the turning point for the gray in this show was that one scene in the bathtub. Right after that, you saw, you know, Sandor Clegane getting more layers. And, and, and that's what I really loved. And you saw a lot of your heroes doing things that were questionable after that. So this is where the gray is instituted in the series. And I think that it, it's one of the most important scenes because it really was a turn. And that's where Jamie starts to become one of the fan favorite characters, despite all of his flaws and everything that he has done. And that's where his path of redemption starts also. And so that is one scene that really sticks out to me that I absolutely love. Um, and then, of course, the Tyrion scene. And I should have done this a while back, but I will be in dereliction of my duty if I did not give a honorable mention to Samuel Tarley. Yeah. One of the most underrated characters in the entire show, a fantastic actor. And he also had a absolutely 
mesmerizing performance in season eight when he first meets Danny and she tells him that she burnt his brother and father alive. His acting in that, him trying to keep his composure and accept what just happened to him whilst also knowing that he has a bombshell for her in his pocket too. I mean, that entire scene was just so powerful and as a character he is such an important character uh, and I, I just love Samuel Tarly he is such an unlikely hero and that performance is something that is, is just amazing to me alright favorite seasons or favorite season I guess I shouldn't say seasons favorite season uh, Devin <laughs> starting with you damn it <laughs> Um, you know what Uh, season one Season one is my favorite Game of Thrones season. I've watched the entire series, but just the amount of setup in season one. If you watched season one and then went and saw season eight, there are so many things that just link up from that very first season. And I just forgot how much happens in season one. And I know that's like a cop out because it's the first one. And I don't even know if I think season one is the best season because it has to be three or four to me. But season one is my favorite one because Game of Thrones was a gamble, you know, uh, a swords and sorcery, sex field, violent show on HBO. Like, I mean, it just doesn't there's a medieval stuff doesn't really do well in entertainment. Like it doesn't generate the big bucks. Like, when's the last time everybody just loved watching some medieval shit and would tune in every week? I'll wait. And definitely not something that takes itself seriously. So, Game of Thrones was a gamble, but I was just so excited to see what HBO was going to do. And, you know, whether you're talking about the setup for the White Walkers or the introduction of the characters or all the twists and zigzags like Robert Baratheon getting killed by a pig. And, of course, Ned Stark getting his head chopped off. The introduction of Danny and the, of the dragons at the very end of the last scene. The call Drogo giving the cra- the golden crown that all men should feel to Viserys. Viserys, mather, mather, uh, Viserys. I mean, just everything that happened in season one the way it echoed throughout the entire series, like somebody's mad about at this person. Why are they mad? Oh, that's back in season one. Oh, this family is now powerful. Now go back to season one. This family doesn't exist anymore. Go back to season one. I just season one is, I have a, it's just great. I mean, I just, it was a roll of the dice. There's no way if you would have told me that, one of the greatest shows of all time would be in a political swords and sorcery tale with dragons and wizards and gods and all that would be one of the best shows ever. I would have laughed in your face before Game of Thrones because I just wouldn't think the culture, the people who watch Game of Thrones are so varying. You know, I run into people, who, you know, drink $200 bottles of wine and watch Game of Thrones and I'd run into people who smoke black and balls and drink MD-2020 who love Game of Thrones. It's just, and it all started with season one. I all started season one so that's my favorite one. Justin, your turn. Alright. Man, another very, very tough 
question and one that's just so hard to answer. But um, but but luckily, before the final season of Game of Thrones came out, I got to I got the chance to rewatch the entire series up until that point again. And I think it was a little more clear to me that my favorite season or the season that I think is definitely the best yeah, I, when I really think about everything, I got to go with season four, man. I mean, the, the thing about season four is also is that first you got to think about the position that it was in. We're coming off the Red Wedding. So which was just the, the biggest a big event, arguably the one of the, the greatest event that ever thing that ever happened in Game of Thrones, as far as just the buzz that it created, you got all these eyes on you. And the question is, well, how is that season going to live up to the way season three ended? And I mean, there are just so many kick-ass things that happen in the fourth season. First of all, you have the purple wedding and the death of Joffrey and everything like that. We talked about the, Devin and I talked about the scene with Tyrion and his trial and everything. Well, all that happens in season four. Then you have uh, the the stuff that was going on with Danny. That was the march through Slaver's Bay. And that was really a big turning point in Danny and, and her growth and her progression. And then um, I think this is a good time to, I kind of mentioned him a little bit, but let me talk a little bit about Oberyn Martell. This character's introduction into King's Landing was definitely a breath of fresh air. I thought that he brought a nice change of pace. His kind of progressive, or I guess you could say his his bisexuality, everything about him, the actor's charisma, the way he looked, like everything about that actor and that character, I just thought was great. And then him being consumed by vengeance and you finding out the story about his sister and everything like that. And it all leads leads up to this battle with the mountain and just and and the way that that battle plays out and just when you think that maybe Oberyn's going to win that maybe we're going to he's going to have this moment and he's going to avenge his family and different things like that they uh, that bubble or should I say head is popped and that just again just such a um, a very shocking, very, uh, uh, again, very just almost traumatic inducing death. And just, uh, you know, it, it, it just was also in that same spirit of the Ned Stark death and the Red Wedding and different things like that. So that was another just great moment, solid moment for the show. And it's hard to think that all of these great things happened in this one season. And also just to mention uh, Arya and the Hound, this was also, we got a lot of scenes with them and their road trip and them developing as characters and playing off of each other. And there was some great acting in those scenes as well. So when I look at everything, man, this, I think that season four definitely to me is 
one of my favorites. And I think when you look at all just the big events that happened, I feel like the pacing also, just from a technical standpoint of that season, the pacing never slowed. It it grabbed you right away. It We start off with the Purple Wedding and everything, and that season really just never lets go of you. And some of the things that happened at the end just made me so excited for what was to come. So definitely season four is my pick for the best and my favorite. Heather, it is your turn. Um, so this, I don't know how other people are going to feel about this, but for me, my favorite season, honestly, was season seven. Um, and I say that because that is where, um, it's where the Starks came back home to each other after everything they had each experienced on their own journeys. And you just see how different they are and, um, just the impact that their, that their own journeys and their, their hardships has had, um, whether it's in a good way or a bad way, it's just in general a season where you just see a lot of character development. And there's um, there's just also so much story that happens and a lot takes place at a quicker pace, which for me, I liked that change. Um, but, you know, I just think that, you know, you see how these characters have become so strong and so independent and just seeing how their views on certain things have changed so much over the years since they were all last together, which was what season one or two, I can't even remember at this point, but it was so long ago that they were all together. And it just was, I I think it was just a really good season of um, just seeing just them seeing each other and seeing how far they've come and just knowing like just that subtle knowing of like, yep, there's been a lot of pain in all of us, you know, but just being able to still, um, you know, come to a common place and just kind of have some kind of peace in knowing that they're home with each other for a little bit at least. And I just really liked that particular, um, story, story development in season seven. And, um, you know, I did also think it was cool seeing more of the dragons and the dragons fighting and just the, you know, all of that was really cool, too. But just for the, the sake of the storyline in general, it was just cool kind of seeing it come in a sense, all of it come back back to where it started in a way. So for me, that's why season seven favorite. No, I, I, I definitely can see a lot of uh, stuff with that because I, too, uh, liked it when uh, the, the pace quickened a little more. That's why a lot of things in season seven and eight didn't bother me because that's always been one of my biggest drawbacks for game of thrones especially the books is that things do progress very slowly at times yeah and so i liked not essentially watching people travel i mean that's one <laughs> of the things i hate about lord of the rings is that it's 99.999% walking the fuck around <laughs> and it's annoying as fuck and I was glad to not have to deal with that anymore. I really kind of just liked how it really did just yeah. give me the and, and, and give you the story beats that kind of matter at times. Yeah. I mean, there, you know, there are always some things that can be fleshed out a little more and stuff like that. But I personally, like I said, I agree with you. I don't feel like uh, the that season especially was hampered from from just kind of quickening the pace a little bit yeah definitely a big change from especially the first couple of seasons i would say probably up to even season four i just feel like that a lot of it was you know more drawn out which was essential to the story because i mean it wasn't like it wasn't like it wasn't important things to know mostly but it just the the way that they made it go faster it, it just kind of it made you more intrigued the whole time and every episode was essentially more 
you know, action packed or eventful in a sense than just the long journeys that you see in a lot of the first few seasons of the show, which are all great. And it's all awesome. But just saying that, you know, I I enjoyed that. It's like, okay, one thing after another, man, they're just (laughs) getting things done. Things are happening. This is crazy. You know? So yeah, I, I'm just more of a fan of that sometimes. Yeah. I, I, I love the pace picking up there. I mean, seven seasons in, you know, I think it's time to get your feet moving and me being a huge fan of how Stark, uh, it was great to see all of the Starks back in Winterfell, you know, where they should be. So that was absolutely, uh, I do. I, I did like season seven. I liked all the Game of Thrones seasons. I, I don't, I don't care. I like see, I, I, I really enjoyed season eight. So there, yeah, I'm going to watch it again. Yeah. And I do also think that, um, just kind of a random shout out to Sansa in this. I think that her character came a long way. And I think that um, she's another character where you see the most growth in her throughout the show. And I think in season seven, you see a lot more of her being like, okay, she can handle this job. She can be queen and she can do this. And she's totally up for the challenge. And I, I respect that. And I think that that was really cool. And even John being able to see that, like when he came home, he was like, you're very different. You're not the person that you used to be. Like, I trust you to take care of these people while I'm gone. So I just thought that was really cool too. Mm-hmm. So for me, and I'll start, a, uh, I'll start mine off with, it is season six. That is my favorite. And I'll start it off with my favorite moment of Hodor dying. God, that was such a great scene. <laughs> um, but I talked about a lot about that earlier. Uh, so I'll move on. Um, for me, I mean, you, you have John coming back from the dead. You have, like I said, Hodor dying. You get to see the stuff from the Tower of Joy. Um, you get to, at least within the show, you get the confirmation of the long-standing theory of R plus L equals J, which is the the theory of who John's parents were. You get a lot more confirmation of that um, in this season. You get uh, Cersei blowing up the Sept, uh, the Sept of Baelor. Yes, um, amazing. Yeah, you get to see that, which I also loved. You get to see, uh, you get to see, and this is going to sound terrible. One of the funniest suicides I've ever seen with uh, what's his name, Tommen. Yeah, oh, when yeah, Tommen kills himself, dies. that was <laughs> that Olympian. That was just, I just loved it. Whatever he's like, they're like, all right, now come talk to your mom, and he just walks the fuck out the window. Yeah, I mean, I know that's a terrible thing to say. It was just really kind of funny, and and then on top of that, you have the Battle of the Bastards. Which to me was the best battle sequence on Game Agreed. of Thrones. I, I loved agree. it. Yes. It was brutal. It was, you know, I, I loved that those scenes where it like showed John like suffocating under people. I loved, you know, just you really do see the brutality of it. You get to see that you can have all the plans in the world you want. It won't matter at some point. Like shit's going to go down and all this other stuff. I, I just really loved that battle sequence. And to me, it, that is that's my number two highlight of the best of Game of Thrones stuff. And it was just everything about that. I truly, truly loved. And it's so to me, like when you take all those things, like it really I really just loved season six and also the end of season six is where they foreshadow that they're really going to fucking like step up the pacing in the last two seasons, because that's when you see varies go to Dorne and then back to Essos, like in like 15 minutes of scenes. So you're like, fuck yeah, they're not going to show shit on a boat. I love that. And they just really kind of showed, I, I, 
the mentality they were going to take because most of that was off the books. You know, they were done with the books at that point. So I really kind of loved that they showed to me, especially that they were still going to just go forward. You know what I mean? Like I, to me, I, I thought a lot of it was rather fearless with how they were just going to plow forward with what they were going to do. Like they had a mission and damn it, they were going to fucking do it. And I really thought I really thought season six like sealed uh, a lot of that for me. Like it sealed that that it was going to show that mentality when they went into it. And I, and I just absolutely loved it. Yeah, I would say that's probably my um, probably my second favorite season of the whole series is uh, seven and then six. Yeah. So our next segment, we will be talking about our impressions of season eight. And I'll be starting this one. So um, overall, I was I was fairly good with how season eight went. Um, my low point for season eight was the batter, Battle of Winterfell. Um, I thought there was just a lot of weird choices made in that episode. Um, kind of like uh, the fact that the cinematographer was like, oh, I wanted to make it more cinematic and it's not my fault if people don't know how to like tune their TVs and all this other stuff. And I'm like, you can't have a sh- you can't do that in a show because you can't have your TV be good you know, or programmed correctly or configured correctly for like every other episode and it just not be okay for that one and not even warn people like, Hey guys, this was shot in a different way. Maybe you want to adjust these settings and these settings to make it better for you. Or, Hey guys, make sure you watch this in a very dark room because a lot of this is a dark uh, scene. So the lighting won't always be the same. They give us no warning. And then they just want to be like, you guys just don't know what you're doing. And you're like, well, you can't do that in a TV show. I mean, especially, like I said, without a warning, you can't not give people a warning and then just blame them for it. I mean, come on. When every other episode works for it, you can't just have it be this all of a sudden that doesn't. But that, and, and to me, then there was a lot of narrative problems with that episode for me, because like you can't have a battle that huge and just constantly keep doing death fake outs for a lot of the main characters. You can't have all these characters look like they're going to die like nine times and just not kill them. I mean, especially like Sam, you can't have that scene set up for Sam where he's like covered with like five of the whites and then just be like, Oh, well they didn't kill him though. I'm like, I saw like one guy get taken down by one white and then just, you know, Sam's in a five white dog pile and all (laughs) is just fine. Like, it's just weird to like, you can't set up those images and then just say, well, they just didn't die from it. I'm like, well, why though? Like, then show why they didn't, you know, because I mean, it's safe to assume he was in that position for three or four minutes. So were they like tickling him? What? What were they doing? Why weren't they killing him? You can't be. (laughs) It just makes no sense. And they did that with Brienne and Jamie and Sam and all these characters multiple times. And there was just never any weird, like there was never a payoff. And I understand they didn't want to kill those characters. That's fine. Then don't show them set up for death and then just not pull the trigger on it. You know, that's what was so weird to me with those scenes. Um, but I was fine with the pacing of everything. I, I'm, this might be controversial to some people. I was fine with uh, Danny's heel turn because to me, it wasn't rushed. It wasn't random. Um, I feel like if you had watched that show, as everybody claimed they had, it was fairly self-explanatory where that turn came from, because this is that that character arc, that turn for her, they've been setting up since season two. And they have shown a lot of elements that directly show that something like that was going to happen. I mean, even directly this 
the season before that, whenever it showed her kill the Tarleys, it shows up. It shows that she's not just killing bad people; that she's willing to kill good people that just don't do what that they don't do what she wants. And yeah. ultimately, her burning the 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 Red Keep and everything like that to me wasn't her burning the people of Westeros or burning you know the capital for the sake of burning the capital. It was her reaction to Cersei not doing what she wanted, and in some ways. Tyrion not doing what she wanted and that, that's always been her reaction all the way back to season two when she's like hey guys like when she shows up at Karth and they're like she's like hey you guys gotta let me in and they're like why why do we have to let you in and she's like if I don't if you don't I'm gonna murder you that's been her reaction to that situation since season two and there are parts of it in season one but I feel like they were slightly more justifiable in season one but in season two if people didn't just automatically acknowledge and accept her arbitrary claim to power. She was like, they're an enemy and I'm going to kill them. And that's been her character since season two. And so whenever you start seeing the downfall of that in season eight, all of a sudden people are having issues with it and saying it was rushed. I'm like, do you need more than six fucking seasons of development of that character trait from her? Because it's been there the entire time. They've addressed it at least once or twice every fucking season that, you know, and Tyrion even addresses it a little bit in, in, in the in the season finale whenever she was like, but when they, she burns bad people, we cheered her. So it, that just became like a learned behavior type of thing with certain situations. And I'm like, it's 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 always been there. That's been the one claim I've always had about Game of Thrones is that Danny will turn bad. And did it go the way I thought? No, but I always thought that that was her story arc is that she's going to go bad. And she did. And it's because those seeds were always there. and. Like I said, it's if you really look for it, they're there. Like I said, all the way back in seasons two, it's just the show did the same thing. And I think the books did the same thing or the books have up until a certain point done the same thing. And I think fans did the same thing that Tyrion talked about. A lot of fans really just kind of overlooked a lot of the negative times. She's used that same mentality that she did in in this show at the end they ignored those times because the times that she did it and they liked it they were the bad people so to them for most people that that was always their justification and then all of a sudden she became a bad guy and it was weird and i'm like no that's to me that was the only logical conclusion of her story arc i would have thought it was weird if she never had the heel turn based on everything i had seen in the show but i mean that's just my big biggest takeaway from that part of it especially because that has been one of the biggest talking points of game of thrones and everything like that for the final season um i'll also say bran becoming the king of westeros wasn't necessarily a bad choice based on the way they developed it in the show it's that's personally not where i would have gone with it like i said i think it should have been podrick the guy has a magic penis <laughs> there is no one better to rule the kingdoms than that man right there um but I mean, like I said, the way they presented Bran becoming the king in the show made sense. I I thought John's ending, ending, ending was very very fitting. They foreshadowed that the episode before, also, or maybe not the episode before. Maybe it was two before. It was two before they they foreshadowed that ending. Um, you know, they foreshadowed uh, Arya's ending uh, at one point too. I don't remember what season, but she does ask, "What is west of Westeros?" She was asking somebody that. Real quick question: Where did, um, just so I can remember, where did they foreshadow John's ending? Where were you seeing that? Torment, torment. Whenever um, him and Torment were parting ways, uh, Torment says that you belong in the true north. That's where you'll be free. That's where you'll be happy. Okay, right. Gotcha. Um, 
you know, Tormund was talking about that's where he truly belongs. So, I mean, his ending was exactly that, um, which to me actually was, I ultimately believe would be a happy ending for him because of what Tormund said with the way they portrayed the character and everything like that. You know, the happiest moments of his life was when he was north of the wall. And I think that he he would be that again, uh, returning up there with that. You know, it's and everybody, you know, like whether or not they were happy endings or not and everything like that. I think that plays into the strengths of Game of Thrones, because the whole point of Game of Thrones was to try to combine a realistic story and an also a compelling story, which those are sometimes very hard to do, because sometimes to be realistic in a situation like this, you have to kill off main characters that you that you wouldn't necessarily do to maintain a complete narrative for like you know for just telling a narrative story so that can be sometimes a very hard balance to strike and i think for the most part game of thrones did strike that balance and i thought that came across in the end where you know expectations and and wants and desires weren't always met you know like john being sent quote unquote to the night's watch and for him to say fuck off and just continue to go north um you know, that might not have been a, a, a quote unquote happy ending or the expected ending that a lot of people thought, but I thought it was a very fitting end for that character because I mean, come on, that's what he does. He sulks in corners and now he gets to sulk up in the cold. That's what he does. He, that is always the best Jon Snow. And that's what he's going to do for the rest of his life. I mean, you know, like Sansa, Sansa's the one that kind of did get a happy ending, you know, and that made sense. I mean, it made a little less sense that she was like, oh, the North still won't bow even though they would be bowing to a Northman right. and Bran. So that part of the logic did was like a little weird to me, but I'm like, eh. And then also like, why wouldn't the, well, like, why didn't the Greyjoys argue the same thing when Sansa was like, no, the North, you know, needs freedom. The Greyjoys had argued the same thing with Danny and kind of had gotten that same thing. They had gotten a little bit of autonomy, kind of like the Greyjoys or not the Greyjoys, um, that the Dornish people had the Martells because the Martells, while a part of the seven kingdoms still had their own monarchy, they were just never going to be kings. They were always going to be princes, you know, so they were able to maintain some semblance of their autonomy, but were still within the fold of everything. And that's kind of what the Greyjoys were going to be doing. So why couldn't the North do the same thing, you know, or, or, and if they didn't, and they really wanted to keep that point, why didn't the Greyjoys argue the same thing then right after, you know, like Yara made that big point to Danny of like, oh, the you know, the Iron Islands need to be free. But then all of a sudden, when Bran literally just gives the North freedom, Yara just sits there and goes, meh, we can stay. And, you know, it's not a big deal anymore, guys. It was like a year ago, but not anymore. Like, why wouldn't they have done that? Why wouldn't the Dornishmen have done that? It just made no sense to just have the North leave and everybody else just stay and be like, yeah, cool. Now we're going to be six kingdoms now. Maybe they just all like even numbers. I don't know. <laughs> She don't want the smoke because every time they run up on Northmen, they get murked. That's in the history. They do good for a little yeah. bit and they get, then they get deboed. So she knew she start that shit. She's getting that smoke. She didn't want it. Even though it's Memorial Day coming up. True. I mean, but I mean, and that very much could be the case. It's just one of those things that it just made. That was a little weird tweak to me that all of a sudden these characters didn't do those things. Um, but I mean, for the overall point, I, I thought they hit most of the right notes with a lot of their scenes and their, their their ways of closing the stories. Like I said before, it's I might not have always liked the way they close some of these story arcs and, and tie these strings together. But at the same time, they're not necessarily beholden to my expectations or what I want or what I think. You know, it's overall, it's their story, you know, and if that was the way they were, they 
sought to do it. I mean, that's fine. You, you can like it or not, but I mean, it's it's still they they don't have to be beholden to expectations uh, with how they want to close things. And I I still think that most of the endings felt right it to a degree. You know, like I said, I might not have liked them, but they felt right with, with the narrative that was presented to us. You know, I was kind of sad to see my boy Podrick be in the King's Guard because now he's not getting to use his most precious of gifts on the ladies of Westeros anymore. <laughs> but, you know, that's that's what they did, you know, and and for what it was, it was kind of a throwaway scene. But I really did kind of like that new small council and how just of a hodgepodge of of yeah. people it was, you know, like it sh- was just the most bonkers fucking small table you could ever have. But showing that they really are changing things, which is cool. No, it's very true. And I do like the fact that, I mean, and I, 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 it was a kind of a throwaway line and I, I kind of felt like they didn't need it when Tyrion's like, oh, we'll have a new master of war and a master of this and a master of that, a uh, master of whispers, a master of war. And there's one other one they didn't have at the time. You know, we'll have one of those soon. And Bran's like, I'm sure you will and all this other stuff. And I'm like, well, if the whole point of this new government and everything like that was to change things, do you really need a master of war? Do you really need a master of whispers or anything like that? You don't really need those those positions anymore in this new thing. I, I mean, maybe a master of war still because you don't know something else crazy could happen and you might still need a master of war, but do you need a master of whispers? Do you still need that position? Because nine times out of 10, the master of whispers was the one causing some shit and they all know it. <laughs> so do you really need that anymore? So, I mean, little things like that, I thought, you know, weren't necessary, but I mean, I do think it was funny when they're all sitting there talking. And then one of bronze main talking points as the master of coin was like, Oh, we need some more brothels stat. <laughs> he's like naval ships eventually brothels we need them yesterday right and i just thought that was fitting that you know in the end he's now the the warden of the oh i don't even know what region that is anymore but he's you know he's the high garden well he's the lord of high garden but that region of westeros what the whole area is called um and you know he's now in control of all this land and all this money and all this everything and you know he's still him though he's still brawn he's still like man i need me some sex workers now <laughs> and i liked that i like i like the fact that they essentially kind of picked characters that uh in at the in the the last small council that would they would have power but they were also kind of the least likely to be really corrupted by power because for better or worse, some of them were already shitty. Like in Bronze case, he was already kind of a shitty human being. So it's not like he can really be corrupted. He's very much going to be the person he is and always was from that. You know, Davos is not a character that's really going to be corrupted. Samuel Tarly is not really a character to be corrupted. Brienne's not really a character to be corrupted. So I liked that aspect of it. So whether or not they were good or, you know, uh, morally repugnant characters, you know that they were still going to be themselves with the power they were presented. And I did think that that was nice for everything at the end. But overall, I would I would give season eight by itself. I would give it a B minus. I thought it was I thought it was, you know, it was very good. It wasn't great. It wasn't it didn't hit all the highs that Game of Thrones could hit, but it still hit all the right notes that Game of Thrones should hit in the end for me. And that's my that's my little spiel on season eight. So now it is Heather's turn or well, does anybody have anything to say 
about what I said first. I guess that'd be the next logical point before we move on to someone else. I did have just like a quick thing, just a counterpoint about the um, do we need to do we really need like the war, the war master or whatever it was. Um, maybe that was still also them just trying to figure out how do we do this in a new way that's not because they're so I feel like they're so used to how things have always been that they're still trying to figure out like, well, what can it be now? So, you know, just having that whole like, oh, well, we need this, but we don't have it yet. So, yeah, it's like, well, maybe we don't need it. But I still think it, it kind of ended off where it felt like they were still trying to figure out what they did and didn't need and how the changes needed to happen. So that was just a counterpoint to what you said. No, that and then that's fair. You know, that is a very fair thing, because for all we know, you know, like three weeks after that scene, they can be like, you know, well, I Forget guess we it. don't need. Yeah, we don't need those people. And so and, and that could be the next step in that, you know, in that conversation, like weeks down the line, we just don't see it because the show ended. And th- that that is a very uh, fair point uh, to that. And I kind of agree with your uh, master whispers, but on a different level, because why do you need a master whispers when you have Bron? <laughs> True. Yeah, you can see it all. You can see it. Bron is kind of great. Though. Have little birds. Well, not no, Bron, no, you, not, you mean I mean, not Bran, 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 sorry, Bran. I get what you're saying. You have Bran. Yeah. He literally can have I, little birds everywhere, like in the most literal sense of that statement. <laughs> so you don't, right. you don't need a master of whispers when you have Bran. Oh, yes. yeah. yeah, yeah, you're, you're, you're very, uh, you're, you're very on point with that because yeah, when the king is his own master of whispers, you, you don't necessarily need somebody to fill that position. True. Um, yeah. And and just to the last thing on that that scene and um and Bran also I think maybe that could have also been an opportunity to kind of show why he was the right person that they selected as the king. I think that maybe if that could have been something where he could have interjected right there and said, "Oh, well we don't need that person anymore because I I have, you know, whispering birds everywhere or I have eyes everywhere or I can see, you know, I feel like that could have been a really good moment for him while they're kind of trying to make all these decisions and decide. And they're kind of like, okay, how are we going to do this? I think if he could have came in there with some with some orders or suggestions or something that kind of like I think that could have been a really good moment for him to show why he's the king now. But instead it was kind of played like l- like the comedic stuff and and the stuff with Braun and all that was you know, I was fine with that. But I think that could have been a really solid moment where you could have done some things with Bran there. He could have made some suggestions there to really show okay, that's why this dude is the king. But 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 they kind of played it where he was kind of like, okay, well y'all got this. I'm going to go um kind of, you know, I'm going to go kind of see what Drogon is doing or see if I can locate him or whatever the case may be with Drogon, which is a is a big concern. Don't get me wrong. You got a dragon flying around doing God knows what, uh, probably in his feelings because his mom just died. So I totally get the importance of that. But I think that was that could have been a solid moment for Bran to be like, we don't need that because I can do that. Or this is what we can do about that. This is what we can do about that. I thought it would have been cool if he just laid down a bunch of decisive decisions, just all matter of fact. And then they're like, damn, you know, this dude is 
No wonder this dude is the king. So for people who may have been like, well, is Bran really the right person? That might have been a moment where they could have really solidified, yes, he is the right person. You know, if Tyrion's speech didn't do it, there was a moment there. There may have been an opportunity there to really solidify that for Bran. Well, and this is something I've thought of based on what you just said and what Heather had said, too. That that might have been the point of Bran's line afterwards, whenever he's like leaving the room, saying the whole like, oh, I've got no doubt you'll figure it out because of his all knowingness when it comes to a lot of that stuff. And they did foreshadowed that he does partially be able to see the future um, with some of his things too that maybe that's a part of it you know that's why he's saying that line is because of he knows what's going to happen so maybe he doesn't need to be decisive at that moment because he knows the outcome already you know so why force the hand of what you already know is going to happen in that in that situation maybe that's his whole point with that line whenever he's leaving that room that's what the R Raven would do just let it play out because yeah, he it's 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 kind of like the whole Doctor Strange argument in 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 Endgame. You know, you don't want to necessarily say what's going to be because that could change what happens. Whereas right. you know, if he just allows it to progress the way he knows it's going to progress, then it'll be fine. So maybe that's the counter argument to what you were saying, Jasmine, is that since he does have those aspects of him, that maybe he knows without being you know letting them figure out the way to build the new world. And to him to be the ultimately the one that can see those things and shape those things around what they're doing or, you know, giving them guidance when they need. But like, let them kind of stumble and falter, like let them figure it out. That's the way to legitimately get the progress that Westeros is needing. I definitely understand that. But also with that, couldn't the argument also be made? So when do you delegate or step in and make decisions? Or is this and and because he's kind of indifferent or lacks emotions, is there ever a time where you need to make a decision or inhibit or uh, move somebody a certain way or something like that? Or is it just things will play out as they are and he can see it, but he doesn't feel the need to inhibit or move anything or make anything work to that advantage? Is it just let every event unfold as it does? Or, you know, should there, is he ever going to make a decision? Or is it just always, well, let me just let everything plays out because how it's supposed to happen is just how it's supposed to happen. Like, well, well, but to counter that, it'd be, he'd make the decisions when they needed to be made. You know, the decisions to get the outcome that is necessary will be the time you make the decisions because then that outcome won't happen. You know, it's, you know, those would be the, it'd be the time when he needs to make a decision is whenever that was the time he was supposed to make the decision argument, you know? So, you know, and it could be like a version of essentially he's, relying on or the, the system they put in place is to rely more on the small council to where they come to him for things and he's the ultimate deciding factor type of situation i mean it's just one of those things that they were really kind of going for what happens a lot in sports like in football especially um so they always end up like whatever type of head coach a football team has when they're done or whenever they fire that coach they always kind of go for the opposite type of coach with their next hire like if they had a really like defense oriented coach and they fire him, they always go for an offense heavy coach, the next guy, or if they had a very 
player friendly coach with one coach and they fire him, then they, you know, get the very much the disciplinarian type of coach with the next one. So in this, you can argue that they were going for, oh, we've always had these people that are very dictated heavily by their emotions and always letting emotions fuel their vision for things. So then, you know, you swing the other way for better or worse to the guy that doesn't, because maybe that at, at the time, that's what the realm needs. And I thought that that was kind of a play on the situation that they had put forth of, you know, they'll, whenever they need a new person, they all convene and they select a new person. So then that way they can kind of adjust who is the ultimate ruler of things based on what the realm needs at that time, like going forward. I see. I see. Maybe just what I needed then is just for them to, if there was just a way to narratively show that difference, like maybe one person at the table could have been somebody who he was like, yeah, you'll figure that out. But maybe you needed that one where he does make a you know, like something where you you can tell that he can see the difference. Like, I know when I can let something go because that's just that person will arrive to the decision they need to make. But this is something where I definitely need to intervene or step in or make the decision for them. I don't know. I just feel like maybe you needed that difference or maybe they thought the dragon, him deciding to take care of that was the difference. Maybe that's kind of how they felt they were covering that. But I don't know. I felt like that kind of, I just, I don't know. I felt like that would have been cool to see him decisively being the king rather than just kind of like, all right, y'all got this. And, you know, because, you know, you just made him king. So it would have just been nice to see some decisiveness on that from him. Or maybe his lack of doing anything was his decisiveness. Maybe, maybe I just interpreted that wrong. But, well, see, I, yeah. I mean, maybe. Can, and I, I, can I, I interject real quick? That scene. Background, background noise. You can't y- hear you. Oh, my bad. My bad. Sorry. I forgot to turn off my car. Um, hold on. All right. So can I interject on in that real quick? I just wanted to say that that was an illustration of his of his kingly prowess, his royal managerial approach. So he gets his council together and he just wants to see what's important to them. So Bron's like, we need some brothels. needs pussy. And then, you know, Tyrion's like, well, uh, back to the game and the politics. We need to appoint this person and that person, this person. And everybody is doing what they do. They, they, they've reverted back. The big threats are gone and stuff like that. And they're all still looking at very small pictures. So he hears them out. He's like, all right, well, you know what? You guys are doing what you do. But did you guys forget about the damn nuclear weapon that's flying around Westeros right now? Pretty damn angry. I'm going to go take care of that because that's our big threat. That's the big picture. It doesn't matter what we do until that's taken care of. And when you have the Game of Thrones version of a Metal Gear flying around Westeros, you have to take care of that first. And this series has been always about the bigger threat, which is like the White Walkers, and nobody taking care of that first off. So now Drogon is like the White Walkers. 
They got to figure out what that because they don't know what the dragon's going to do. So I think that was in a very subtle way. And if he just comes in and solves all their problems, then what's the point of having a council? And then what's the point of having him appointed by the lords of ladies and getting rid of the rule of succession by birth if this guy's just going to come in and make all the decisions for everyone? The whole point of this is that one person shouldn't have all that power. That's the point. So if he comes in with a council and he makes all their decisions for them, then it just goes back to what's been going on. It's just a king just running around doing whatever he sees fit or she sees fit. And that's what they're trying to get away from. I see some of that. Um, but I would say, okay, well, as far as the dragon be the being the bigger threat, well, is it? I mean, does he know that too? Would he be able to see that? Wouldn't he know if the dragon was a threat or not? Or does he not know? Or does he, you, you know, if he knew he was going to be the king, then should he also know what the dragon was going to do? Or if the dragon was going to be a threat or, I mean, is the dragon a threat? I mean, he, he was capable of understanding why, um, why daddy actually was killed. He was symbolic and intuitive enough to understand that. So is the dragon a threat or, you know, and if, and, and not so much from a narrative standpoint, cause yes, it's still an animal. It can breathe fire and stuff, but would, would, shouldn't Bran know either way? Like, should he know? Shouldn't he already know what the dragon's going to do? Or? It's never been it, It's never been illustrated that Bran just knows everything's going to happen. He's not Dr. Manhattan. He's not existing in the past, present, and future at the same exact time. He has visions. He sees certain things. Like, that's already been illustrated that he has limited clairvoyant abilities. He even said so himself. He spends most of the time in the past. And since he's seen the entire history of mankind, he knows that dragons running around all whimsical and shit is not a good thing. Like, it's just not, like, no matter what. We gotta get that shit taken care of. Definitely. I, I, don't, I don't even understand. <laughs> well, I don't even, I don't even understand but... the question is, is a dragon a th- problem? <laughs> yeah! They're fucking problems. Yes. At all times, dragons are problems. <laughs> Especially if there's one on the loose with no dragon rider. He could. Well, he I could definitely do anything. understand that, but I'm talking about more or less what he knows and doesn't know. Because if you're, because when you're becoming the king and they and you're selected to be the king, and you say to Tyrion, "Well, why do you think I've been sitting here this whole time?" Almost as if you expect it or in some way orchestrated or in some way saw, you knew how this was going to turn out. In some way, the narrative implies that you knew how this was going to turn out. So to what extent does he know? And that's kind of all I'm saying is that it's unclear sometimes what he knows and doesn't know. You know what I mean? So could he have known that, you know, the... Uh, should he already know the threat of the dragon too? Just like he kind of knew he was going to be the king. That's all I'm saying. Just from a narrative standpoint. Yes. But at the same time, you're asking him to know the outcome of every situation ever, because the thing is, is he could know the outcome of him becoming king without knowing the exact things right after, you know, he might be able to see the future of some situations because he did see that the dragon 
flying over the right keep. That wasn't one of his visions. He saw that. So he did see the future of the dragon of, of Danny riding Drogon over the right keep right before she destroyed it. She, he did see that situation, but he didn't see the outcome of her burning the entire city. You know, he didn't see that version of stuff. And who's to say, like, you know, they implied that a good amount of time had passed between Danny dying and all those people getting there, you know, so maybe he saw that he was going to be king right before they left to go, you know, down to King's Landing, you know. So there, it's, it's easy to say that he knew he was going to be king, but he doesn't necessarily know, you know, what's going to happen in four weeks when the dragon could show back up. So, yeah, he might just need to, like, go and just find where Drogon is, go through his little network of wear trees and find out, you know, where the last time he saw Dro- Drogon at. You know, that's that's not unreasonable because, you know, like saying that, you know, whether or not knowing the dragon is a threat right then, you know, he might not have had a vision yet to show what the threat of Drogon was. You know, he might not have had a future vision again since he became king. So he might still need to go have one or, you know, to open up himself to the possibility of it because he has to kind of connect to his network for things to happen. You know, when he's not sitting there connected and like working into stuff and working into the weird trees and stuff like that, he's not seeing things that are happening across the world at that point unless he's logged in. You know, he might still know all the information of the past or he might know some of the visions he has seen about the future. But, you know, we, we, we saw that those come in glimpses here and there and you don't always get the full picture. So he might need, you know, that information to then connect to some of the things he had seen from his visions. Cause like, what if he saw just like a random forest fire, uh, in the future of Westeros, but he doesn't know how it started. He might need to go connect and find out where Drogon is to know if that was a Drogon related fire. Was it just some people lighting some torches and dropping it on some, you know, leaves? Like what led to that? He would have to go see that. And we, we do see that being the need of things from what the information they had given us in the show. And I was just going to say, Sterling, just a, a last thing on that. I was sorry, my bad. I was talking on mute. <laughs> I thought I hit it, but I guess I cut it off and cut it back on. I don't know what I did. But uh, um, but all I was going to say is just that it, it, the only thing I would say is that it's just unclear how much he can see into the future. It's, it's all I'm saying. You know, it, 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 I understand him being able to connect. And when he connects, that's when he can see. And But how far can he see? You know, we're not really sure. When did he know he was going to be the king? Was it the the first few times he did it? Was it the last time he connected? Was it the was it when he ar- arrived back to Winterfell? Like, you know, you're just we're just not sure. So and I definitely understand. I'm not saying it's a deal breaker. I'm not even saying it was necessarily bad. I just think it might have helped his cause a little bit just because, you know, I know we're going to talk about fan reception and stuff, but that's kind of been the narrative of, of fan reception is that people don't feel that he was deserving of that spot. They, they didn't feel like he did enough or enough was done or the or it didn't seem like maybe he was the right person for that. So I'm just, you know, playing armchair quarterback and saying maybe if there his presence was stronger, maybe that could help that narrative that he was the right guy. But I totally get what you're saying. You know, just just wanted to throw that in. Don't yeah, but at the same time, I'm just gonna say this. Don't get me started on people being upset because of what they think should have happened. 
that's just oh yeah we'll get in that well, we'll get in that for a minute so so heather what was what was your thoughts on season eight i mean i feel like like you were saying like the way that most things turned out made sense to me like uh with brandon becoming king especially because um which i kind of discussed with Devin a little bit last week just on our own um he doesn't have any emotional attachments or secret loyalties to anything so the choice makes sense for him to be the king and the ruler because he's not going to be, you know, he doesn't have any secret motives for things. So I think that that did make sense. It was a little bit like, you know, when when that was the choice that Tyrion said was the best choice. I was like, oh, OK, like it wasn't like an obvious, like clearly that's who's going to be king. But when Tyrion was explaining it and just thinking about it, I was like, yeah, that makes total sense. So I didn't enjoy that part of it. And then Sansa becoming the Queen of Winterfell. You know, I think that that made total sense. And I actually saw that coming for a while. So I think that that made total sense for the ending of it, too. Um, I love that Tyrion remained the right hand of the king. And I really liked the explanation that Brandon gave for why he wants him to do that job, you know, to fix the mess, um, to basically to fix what he messed up. So, um, yeah, I understand also why John didn't become king. And I'm sad that he didn't get to stay with his family but he did end up where he did feel most at home, like you were saying. So I get why that was the outcome. He didn't want the throne, never really did. Um, and, you know, and also another thing I would say is in the season, I would have preferred Jamie's death and Cersei's death to have gone down just a little bit differently. Um, mostly because I think that it would have been cool for Jamie at least to see him go out as a hero, saving either Tyrion or Brienne. Um, or even Brandon, because I think that that would have been a cool full circle moment since he tried to kill him in the first season, you know, that he like sacrificed his life to save him, especially since he's now the future king. Like, I just think that would have been cool. But, um, you know, and I was also going to be really mad if the way that he died was fighting Euron Greyjoy because Euron is the worst <laughs> and he has like no redeemable qualities. So I would have been pretty upset if he had died that way. So I'm glad he didn't. But um I just kind of would have preferred more of like a heroic death for him, especially since he had such a huge character transition throughout the past couple of seasons. Um, and also Cersei's death. You know, I just think that um, so many people were after her head. You know, I expected it to be more of a showdown of some kind, not saying that it was necessarily the wrong choice, but just not the choice that I expected from it. Um, I think it would have been like a really cool episode to see where all these people were just like, no, I'm going to be the one to kill her. I'm going to be the one to kill her. But um, that's not what they chose to do with it. And it it didn't make it any less, I guess, you know, impactful in a way, but just in a different way it was impactful. They kind of went more for the sympathetic, sympathetic character with her than I expected that they would have considering all of the craziness that, you know, she's kind of caused over the last few seasons. But I mean, that's what they did with it. And sometimes, you know, it's not the great huge thing, like a huge battle that causes the downfall or causes a death, you know, because her kingdom had been kind of in a downward spiral for a while. And I think that, that was the biggest um, that was the biggest death in a sense for her is knowing that her kingdom was kind of in danger or falling. You know, so that was in a way she had a death in a different sense before her actual death. So but I still would have think that I think that it would have been a cool episode to see all these people that were like, I want to kill Cersei kind of going at it to be like, who's going to be the one to kill her? You know, <laughs> I think that would have been just an interesting um, episode to see. 
Um, I will disagree with Sterling just slightly and say that I think that Danny's death was a little bit weak and anticlimactic for me, at least. I think while maybe, um, you know, they did plant the seeds of her going mad and everything for a while, they did shroud it. They shrouded it a lot in her doing good and being like the people's the people's queen. And um, so it wasn't quite as clear as I think that it should have been with her going mad. I also think that they could have done more interesting story build up to Danny. Um, I don't know, just like maybe just a few subtle, subtle moments in the last season um, that added up a little bit more into her being, you know, being like the mad queen. Um, they did show it a little bit more and especially in the past few seasons, but I just feel like considering her, her downfall and her death and everything that happened there, I think that it would have been nice to do just a little bit more of a buildup of just like subtle things that made her seem like she was going mad. And this is definitely what needed to happen. Um, not to say that the big moments didn't do that, but just more subtle things because the, the show has been so good at like these just little, little moments that kind of build up to a bigger thing. And they didn't do that as much with her character as I would have liked. Um, but also it was a short season, so they didn't really get much of a chance to do that. So yeah, for that one, I will say that her her death was a little bit weak in my opinion. And I think that Tyrion, I think Tyrion honestly was a standout character in this last season, as well as Arya. Obviously, uh, there's so there's no complaints from me on their character arcs. I loved Theon's redemption story as well, especially in the last season. Um, you know, the fact that he died a hero and he just kind of just kind of redeemed himself from who he had been before. And I think that that was a really cool way to end his story. Um, I also just not even like as a character thing or a story thing. I loved the score that they did in most of the episodes in this season. I think it was some of the best musical scores that they've done in the show at all. So I really loved that aspect of it. Um, and seeing the, the ending fate of the characters, it was, it was kind of a beautiful thing because you, you reflect on a lot of how far each of them have come. So mostly, um, it wasn't really the character stories necessarily as much as it was just the issue of how rushed I feel the last season was. Um, so yeah, I mean, the events that happened, I'm mostly fine with. Obviously, you know, as anyone, there's some characters I wish would have lived or whatever, or maybe kind of their story would have gone differently. But, you know, just the actual story was always so great across the board. It was just that it would have been nice to have even just you know, a full season, like 10 episodes or even eight episodes would have been better than six. So I just feel like it would have been nice to have a, a longer season for their last season. A um, couple of highlights of the season, I would say were, of course, Yara, uh, Arya killing the Night King, um, Brienne getting knighted and her and Jamie kind of getting together, which for me, I was kind of like, I, I didn't know how to feel about that one at first. But um, you just for the character development of Jamie, I think that it made sense. And Tyrion kind of that conversation that he had with John about about Danny. I think that that was a huge highlight of the season. Uh probably one of my favorites actually. And then Padraig singing. I don't know why, but that whole scene and just everything that happened within that and then the nighting, all of that was just super cool and it was just very surreal and beautiful. Like I just think that that song was so fitting for that moment and just really a cool a cool thing that they did that they added to it. And um, honestly, I just think that considering the fact that they're ahead of the books, um, they did a good job with closing out the stories. And they did, I think they did well with what they were given and how they progressed it 
beyond the story of the books that they were basing it off of. So I think based on that, there wasn't, I mean, I don't really know of many other ways that it really could have ended, that it would have been more satisfying, really. I think it just more felt like rushed than anything else. Other than the fact that it was rushed, I think that most of the storylines did make sense for for what it was. So that overall, I would say that the season specifically, I would maybe give it like an 80, 85 maybe. Um, but I mean, I just think that I, I think also just because I love the show so much and like many other people, I just wish it would have lasted longer. But the actual storyline itself, I think, ended well and kind of the best way that it possibly could. So any thoughts? I just wanted to say, Heather, you said that you would have loved for Jamie's story to come full circle. And it did. He was born with Cersei and he died with her. So, you know, that's full circle. Um, and you said maybe he could have sacrificed himself for Bran, but you know who that takes away from? Theon. Yeah. So would yeah. you have rather Theon died in some ignominious way just by some random whites or him actually redeem himself and have Bran tell him he's a good man like that scene with Theon? Man, I mean, Jamie had already redeemed himself many times over in the past like two or three seasons. Him going to Winterfell to fight and becoming an enemy of his sister, his lover, the most important person to him on the planet, was redemption enough. And then him knighting Brienne and then him betting Brienne. <laughs> that was all yeah. part of his his redemption story. I mean, so you know, that's what kind of perplexes me about people when they say what they wish they would have happened because if you have a character do something else then you rob another character of something great you know and so one of my favorite questions is like hey how would you have changed it like if you want to have this big like who's going to kill Cersei episode then then that affects the Battle of Winterfell or would you would you have replaced who's going to kill Cersei with the beauty of Season three, episode eight, which is one of the greatest episodes of Game of Thrones ever. Wait, which one? Like episode three. Oh, yeah, it was. I agree with that. Be before the Battle of Winterfell. So if you want to do this, this petty, like, let's kill Cersei episode, then you lose that. No, I totally get that. I just, I think that was just an example of like, if they had done that, I would have been okay with it. Not saying that that was the ultimate best way to have ended Jamie's story. I just mean like, it would have been, I think it would have been like a really cool, unexpected thing. And I just think in general, some way of like, I don't know, just more of like a heroic thing where you feel like he had moved on from Cersei, even though I get why they did it the way they did. Just having that moment of like, his death was, it was, it was about him and it was about his character arc and it was about his growth as a person more than it was about him and his love for Cersei, I think would have just been a cooler way to do it. But I totally get what you're saying. Just preference, you know. I'm, I'm just saying that there is no growth away from Cersei. That's who he is. That's been no matter what, he still loves her. No matter how good he is, no matter what, they're just, they're star-crossed lovers. That's the whole point between the two of them. So I just say neglect, and that's fine. I mean, it's a preference, just like you just said. But I think, and if he would have abandoned Cersei or died for someone else, or did, I think that would have just betrayed his character. I think that would have been a huge betrayal of his character. 
but him trying to break loose of those bonds, him trying to 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 be as good as he can be, that is right because he 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 always wanted to be a great knight and he always wanted to be a good person. But it was his familiar bonds, not just with Cersei, but him being a Lannister and him being a, a great killer and you know all of those things that always kept him from really being the the good person that he wanted to be. And he got a chance to for several seasons to be that good person and take those risks. And hey, after you face the Night King and a wall of White Walkers and do all of that, probably makes you uh, reassess some things in your life. You might <laughs> yeah. go back to your past after that. I'm just saying. So, yeah, but I get what you're saying. I understand. But I, and I don't know. I'm not necessarily talking directly to you, but I'm also talking directly to the center fans who... Uh, has some of those same qualms also. Yeah, and I'm also just kind of a sucker for like more of a happy ending type of thing. And I just think for... Because also, like I said, with Sansa too, where her character was so developed a lot from the beginning to the end, I think Jamie's was as well, where he became kind of like a super character of a redemption story, like Theon actually, you know, where you're just kind of like, man, you've come a long way and you've just become a completely different person. And I just think that, um, not to say that the death and how it happened didn't make sense, but just that it would have been, I would have been okay with seeing it go down a different way where it, it became more of who he is now as opposed to who he was. But again, just preference. Justin, your turn. All right. So overall, my thoughts about the season were that I enjoyed it. I mean, I thought overall it was an enjoyable season of Game of Thrones. I mean, some of the highlights uh, are some of them have already been spoken and I'll just try to go through some of them that stood out to me. But I really liked the uh, the battle with the White Walkers and Winterfell. I thought that they did a lot of different things in that episode to keep it interesting. Um, I didn't notice so much the lighting problem or the dark problem. I'm not going to lie, though. When the episode first started, I did think it was a little dark. And I was like, wait, do I need to adjust my and I adjust my brightness settings and then I didn't really have any problems the rest of the way. So maybe I kind of dodged a bullet that I didn't realize I dodged. Like I just adjusted my settings because I thought I just, you know, I thought my settings on my iPad or my computer or whatever were just off. But I didn't realize that it was a problem until, like Sterling said, there started to kind of be this outcry about it. So that kind of caught me off guard because I just thought it was you know, just my stuff. So now I'm I'm like, hmm, that's interesting. But overall, I didn't have a problem with the visuals. I really liked that episode. I liked how different certain scenes felt. And I believe it was Heather that brought up a little bit about Arya where she was in um where she was in that castle and she was uh, moving and dodging all the different undeads that were looking for. And the white walkers were looking behind corners and she was ducking and hiding, going under tables. I loved that scene. That was intense. That was just yeah. a really awesome scene. I really enjoyed that scene. Um, I also was a big fan of Brienne getting knighted. I thought that was great. That was heartwarming. I really enjoyed that conversation in front of the fire with all of them. And that was 
and and uh, that might arguably be one of the stronger episodes of this season just because there was that because we hadn't seen the white walker war yet so there was kind of just that impending doom that you felt like man somebody's gonna get it this next episode and you were just like man who's gonna get it and seeing how every character spent their last moments we just got some really good stuff in there it gave the actors a chance to just really act there wasn't a lot of action set pieces in that's in that in the in that kind of rung of scenes in that episode and everything like that so that was to me one of the most enjoyable episodes what was that episode two was that two or was that i think three? it was two i can't remember the it exact like okay yeah it's that episode was two. three. Oh, is it it's episode three okay no that's two oh. No, three was There's the better one. I mean, okay. Twitter, so, sorry. So I, I, was, I meant to say two, not three is one of the greatest episodes. Episode two is one of the greatest Game of Thrones episodes yeah. ever. But yes, episode I, two. I, I totally agree with that. So in that spirit, I can't, I, I'm not going to be one of these fans that have this crazy out, outpour of rage and, oh, the whole season was terrible. That's a lie, man. Just as flat out, that is a straight up lie. It was not that. And like you said, I think that second episode is one of their greatest episodes. I thoroughly enjoyed that. Definitely one of my favorite episodes. Um, uh, I guess everybody's going to comment on the Danny Turner Hill thing. I, I think I'm probably more in Heather's camp on this. Um, I'm not as angry about it or as shocked about it or as upset about it as some fans, but I can understand how jarring a little bit jarring it must have felt not not so much the fact that they didn't foreshadow not so much that they didn't give us clues but kind of just uh what heather was saying a little bit yes they gave us clues yes there was plenty of foreshadowing and yes i could sense that this is probably the way this character this is probably how it's going to turn out for this character but i thought that as far as the execution of it they really could have benefited from some more time and just some more episodes and stuff like that. And, you know, just I'll try to be short with this and quick. But for instance, like after um, Missande dies and gets uh, uh, her beheaded in front of um, Danny and everything like that. Uh, in the next episode, there are scenes where you've got Varys and I believe um I don't know if he was talking to one of his helpers or Tyrion. I forget exactly who he was talking to, but they mentioned that Danny was struggling and that she was having problems and she wasn't eating and different things like that. And she had been distant and different things like that. I think what the what we needed was for them to show those things to us. Let me see her not eating. Let me see her in this, you know, we got one look where she looked really depressed and there was a character trying to talk to her. But let me see some more of that. Let me see her flying off somewhere with this dragon and in a rage burning this forest or burning something inside. You know, l l let me see some more of this happening inside of her. And I feel like that would have made her heel turn a little stronger. I think it would have came off a little bit better. I didn't necessarily have a problem with it, but just trying to see it through the eyes of some fans, that, that that's a lot of investment. And that's a lot of time invested in this character. And maybe if we had spent a little more time showing that 
that rage building up and showing that turn and stuff like that, then maybe it wouldn't have felt as jarring to some fans. But on the flip side of that, for all the people complaining and saying that it shouldn't have happened and she should have wound up with the throne and stuff like that, that's not fair, man. They gave you clues. They they gave you enough hints that this was definitely something that, could happen. And I just think it was one of those situations where, and uh, Sterling called it a heel turn. And I like that he used that term because a heel turn for people who have never watched wrestling in their lives and are like, what is he talking about? A heel turn. A heel turn is a wrestling term for when you have a character who was essentially a good guy, a good character, and they turn into a bad character. So yes, the heel turn should have at least been expected or you should have always known that that was going to happen. But I think this is kind of a situation in wrestling where you have a character that a lot of people invested in. In a lot of people's minds, she was their favorite character. For a lot of women, she was a symbol of empowerment, especially given where she started as a character and what she became, amassing this army and... um yeah. Freeing slaves and, uh, you know, having these dragons and being unburned. And she really was this empowering symbol, I feel like, for women. Arguably the most powerful symbol in this for women at some point, at certain points in the series. So I can understand fans investing in her. I can understand them investing in her so much and just wanting to see her have this great moment wanting to see her finally get to that throne so i understand that on some levels and maybe it was just one of those things where like i said even if they had gotten those scenes some of those fans you have to look inside yourself and say okay even if they had developed it better even if you got your scenes and it was a slow heel turn and eventually she turned heel would you still have been upset with it just because you like that character so much just because you really felt something for that character. So I feel like a lot of these fans would have been upset either way. They, I think some people hide behind the fact that they're like, oh, it was the execution of it. And yes, there are some things you can be critical about in the execution. But I really think that a lot of these fans just invested a lot in her and just did, weren't going to accept that either way. And I forget who I was talking to about this, but to quickly bring up another wrestling reference, this reminded me a lot of when Stone Cold Steve Austin turned heel for the first time in wrestling. And some people are like, well, what the hell are you talking about? Well, at the time, to make it really quick, long story short, Austin was like this huge, big, he was like the biggest babyface at the time um, back in the mid 90s. But at the same time, he was an anti-hero. So he teetered on that line, just like Danny did most of the time. There were bad things that she that that Austin would kind of do, but he would do them to bad people. So he's doing these bad things. He's willing, dealing and playing the system, but he's doing it to the bad people or the, the bad people. So we cheered him for that. Well, Whenever it came time for him to turn heel, and he actually did turn heel in wrestling, it a lot of fans, kind of like this situation with Danny, found it kind of jarring, and they weren't ready for it, and they, and they were like, and even Stone Cold to this day, 
on his podcast says that's one of the things that I kind of regretted. Maybe the fans weren't ready for it. Maybe we didn't give them enough reasons to do that. Maybe I wasn't I was still too hot and I wasn't stale enough for us to make such a big change that quickly. And, you know, it's one of the things he says in his career, if if they could have done it a different way, he would have done it a different way. And I feel like sometimes those those fans are the same way with this situation with Danny. I feel like they invested in her so much. They liked her so much as a character and they leaned in too much to the good things that the narrative showed you. But like you guys said, they you missed the beat with the bad things that they showed you also and how this could be her turn at any moment. So I guess that just kind of sums it up for what I think about Danny. Um, as far as just really quickly about how the season ended and everything like that, I'm not going to lie to you. When the season came to an end, I was okay with it. I thought the ending was okay, good, decent. But I'm not going to lie to you, man. I didn't get that grandiose just feeling of satisfaction that I really thought that I was going to get. I, I, I sat there when it was over and I was like, okay, cool. You know, the, the right people won. I was glad that the Starks kind of wound up with everything. And I think that the potential for spinoffs, the way that they ended it, would be great. You could always revisit this or you could always come back to this and do a spinoff or something like that. Like, like Aria going on some adventures. That would be awesome. Seeing how Sansa handles being the queen would be great. Yeah. You know, there are all these great things that you could totally do for continuation. So that aspect of it, I appreciate. But I do think there were some missed opportunities. And I do feel that overall in this season, so many big things happen that you had to fit in six episodes. You you had to have the Night King battle and you had to kill him. You had to have the confrontation, the confrontation with Cersei and then you had to kill her. Then you had to have Danny turn and become what she became, the the dragon. And then you had to kill her. And it was all in six episodes. And I feel like that is a lot of big events. That is a lot of big things happening to compress in six episodes. And I think narratively, that's why some of it wasn't accepted by all the fans. I do feel like because you had to compress everything in that short amount of time, you had to have characters doing certain things that just make you kind of scratch your head and go, well, would that character do that? Sterling alluded to some of these things earlier with the uh, with the conversation that all that everybody that all the representatives of Westeros had and Bran eventually becoming the king. And why didn't the Greyjoys also say they wanted their independence? Uh, you know, why didn't some of these characters kind of step in and say, wait a second, what about us? And I feel like some of that part of the narrative suffered because we had to hurry up and get to a resolution. Also, with the stuff with Jon Snow and Danny, I really do think that there was a missed opportunity there. Um, the, the, I, I feel like there there was potential there, especially with Grey Worm. Grey Worm's actions toward the end of this whole thing was one of the things that made me the most uncomfortable. Like I felt like if the moment he discovered that Danny was dead and Jon Snow was the one that killed Danny. It is hard to imagine a scenario where he just locks up Jon Snow and patiently waits for this 
meeting to happen so that we can find out who the king is, who can make these decisions and stuff like that. I don't know. Like, I, I just find that kind of hard to believe. Like, if he if Danny's dead, why wouldn't he just kill Jon Snow right then? Like, why? Wh- what? What? I needed to know why he showed such restraint um, to let it get to where he was in front of this meeting with everyone at um, all the representatives of Westeros to make these decisions. And would he be okay with Tyrion kind of saying who he thinks the king should be? Would he have accepted Tyrion's words at that? Would he have asked Tyrion, who do you think should be the king after, especially after Tyrion's uh display with Danny throwing away his hand of the King badge and stuff like that. So Grey Worm is a character. Some of his actions, okay, I went with it. I accepted it overall, but some of that made me uncomfortable. And I think there was a missed opportunity. I would have loved for him to have walked in the room when right after Jon Snow killed Danny, and there could have been a fight right there. I feel like uh, Jon Snow versus Grey Worm, and maybe this is just the wrestler booker in me, but I felt like that would have been such an awesome fight. Like that would have been a great dream match between those two. And even if you had everything occur the same way, the dragon flies in, that stops the fight. Nobody has to die there. The, the dragon flies in. And just when maybe Grey Worm thinks the dragon is going to kill Jon, when the dragon sees Danny is dead, the dragon burns the throne just like he did. And maybe that's what gets Grey Worm going, man, you know, I, you know, maybe that's what makes Grey Worm think twice before taking any actions. But the way it plays out in this narrative that we got, he just kind of shows up and they're like, well, he wants to execute John. And all I could think is, why hasn't he already done that? Like he waited this long for this meeting to take place. So... I just think that with more time, and I'm sure Grey Worm had his reasons in the narrative we got, but I didn't get a chance to understand those reasons because we had to hurry up and get to the resolution and get to Bran being king. So I do think overall this narrative suffered. I don't think that it was the... It didn't have all of that development and storytelling of the past Game of Thrones episodes that we're used to because you were trying to fit a lot in in this one season. But overall, I, I like I said, I enjoyed this season. Um, and despite its flaws, I still found it enjoyable. And I was, for the most part, happy with uh, who wound up um, on the throne, so to speak, or in this case, who wound up all breaking the wheel. And in that way, Danny did kind of get her dream. She wanted to break the wheel. It was broken in a different way. So overall, not bad, man. And my hat is off to everybody who was it was not only in the final season, but everyone that was a part of this team. I mean, I enjoyed the past few years investing in this watching this and it's definitely something that I will never forget. So overall, if I was going to get a score, I would go with probably like a 75 out of 100, mostly positive, but I do think that some of the narrative developments, uh, suffered. And I think some of the character decisions didn't seem like things the characters would do just because we didn't have time to really fully understand as a narrative why they made certain decisions and things like that. So. That's it for me. I will say this, Justin. That is something I didn't quite look at it in that way was the fact, like you said, that ultimately Danny's 
uh, goal and dream for Westeros was achieved with the idea of breaking the wheel. Uh, and it was through her, but not, well, it was because of her, just not through her in which it happened. Yeah. And that's why overall the story works. Like people saying, oh, this was crappy or it was stupid or it was just like a lot of the outrage that this is getting is really unwarranted. Because if you look at the totality of the story, she did get, she did get her dream, you know, and it was through that dragon. It You know, it was her dying and it was also the actions of that dragon. You know what I mean? Like all of that. So she was very much a part of breaking that will, as you said. No, that's good. That's good. Uh, Devin, what do you think of season eight? I can't really say anything that you guys haven't already said. At this point in time, it's all old hat. I agree with some of you guys, and and the things I had, didn't agree with, I've already spoke to you all about. So you guys pretty much understand where I sit on season eight. Um, really love episode two. I think from a standpoint of a spectacle, this episode was great. Episode three is one of the most amazing battle sequences that I've ever seen in any form of media, period. And I really think the episode uh, of Danny burning down King's Landing, I, I mean, they really focused a lot on like the Battle of Winterfell, 55 days and nights of shooting and thousands of extras and blah, 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 blah. But on 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 the scale, you know, the burning of King's Landing was was just as impressive. Uh, I mean, there's, you know, when you're down in King's Landing with Arya and it's just like one long tracking shot and you see like people running around and panicking and just things going on in the background. There's like a woman slumped up against the wall and there's a man like going, where's my wife? Where's my wife? And then he passes Arya and then he sees her and that's his wife and he just breaks down and, and you know, just, it, you got to become one of those little people in King's Landing. They put you in the shoe of just being a citizen, just a peasant. And all of a sudden there is a first, there's a siege going on and then there's a massacre going on. And just all of the little beats and all the stuff with John and him being complicit in him trying to stop, you know, soldiers and having to kill, you know, people on his side, trying to rape people. You know, that episode was really great in its own right. Like it was really great in its own right. And some people were like, oh, where did the horse come from? And that was stupid. But I was like, this this show has a lot of mysticality to it. And so I just put that up as one of the many mystical elements that have always been in the show. You know, I think it's allowed. You can you can accept, you know, a dragon queen who can't be set on fire and stuff like that. But somebody gets a horse after a city gets destroyed and you're mad about that. Whatever. So, you know, and I really enjoyed the season. I really did enjoy it. I thought the finale was very subdued, restrained and nuanced after all of all of I mean, it was like a, it was like three hours of climax in this season. So it was just nice to have something that was just nice and subdued and, and reflective, in my opinion. And I really enjoyed it. I thought that with what they had set up, this was the best they could do. Uh, do I think there were some things that are fixable? Most certainly, but I don't think you could have fixed it in season eight because, you know, people were saying it's like so rushed, it's so rushed, it's so rushed. And I wish I had more episodes, but there were many longer episodes. So this was actually more like seven and a half and an eight 
seven and a half to eight episodes of content when you think of the length of it. So it really wasn't as short as you think it was. Um, so I'm just wondering if, you know, another hour or an hour and a half would have been enough to appease some of the people. And I have to say, I don't think so. Um, now, I know there's a lot of people who look at this series intelligently and like Justin, you made some great points just about what characters did that didn't make sense and and or that you needed to see what their reasonings were, which is which is really, really great. But I'm on social media. Uh, I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook, Twitter. And I see what you guys have been saying. And it's it's not what Justin is saying or Sterling is saying or Heather is saying. What I'm hearing is, man, how come John didn't give Daenerys that D? Man, you know what? I, I, I can't tell you how many people I had on my wall, on my page is just like, I'm with you, Danny. After episode uh, five, Dracarys, completely in support of her burning down King's Landing. Completely. Like, no, nah, that's cool. She's burning children and women and innocents and the city surrendered to her and she still just killed everybody. I get it. They all suck. And I know that it's probably hard to see one of your characters have such a, I don't know, a, such a, such a debilitating fate, such a, such a, such a, a jarring fate right before you. But you know who I really liked in this series? Ned Stark. And they cut his damn head off seven episodes in. So, kind of should have seen it coming. I saw it coming four seasons ago. I've been talking about how I think Danny's going to be the big bad at the end of this for four seasons, which is about now is about like five years. And I was right about that. And I love being right. So I'm completely fine with the heel turn. And if you thought it was jarring or you needed some more, just like Sterling said, you had six seasons of explanation coming at you so if you couldn't accept it in that form i don't think two more episodes is going to help you accept it you had your favorite character who you were emotionally invested in you named your daughter khaleesi or whatever the fuck and now your daughter named khaleesi or denarius is named after a monster that's why you name your kids after characters once the series concluded that's what smart people do that's why that's why my son my sons have nerd names but they haven't committed any atrocities. So anyhow, but I mean, really, I think fans expectations are to blame for all this outrage and this council culture It's just like now, whenever you watch a TV show, if you do something predictable, it was like, oh, that's so predictable. Oh, my God. Why don't you take a risk? And then when they take a risk, everybody does this. They're signing petitions and saying that the whole series is garbage and saying it was a complete waste of time. And this is why you get predictable cookie cutter stuff, because when something is subversive, if something challenges what you think should happen, you throw a fit. And that's all people have been doing online is throwing fits. But at the at the base of it, before you start talking about the, the writing or the pacing or anything, the first things are always, oh, my favorite character didn't turn out the way I wanted to turn out. And I'm mad about that. And, and that's just to be honest. You like Danny. You didn't want her to become a bad guy. She did. And that upset you. And that's who your money was on to take the Iron Throne. 
And that's it. It's okay. But that doesn't mean the season should be rewritten. And it's not going to be rewritten because they did the best with what setup they had, in my opinion. That's just my honest opinion about that. There are a few things that did make me scratch my head about this season, though. One, Bran, when he left during the Battle of Winterfell, what the hell was he doing? He said, I got to go. And then... He came back, and I figured by the end, it would reveal what he did, but apparently he just was like, oh, shit, the Night King's coming. I'm about to go turn into some birds real quick, and hopefully everything works out, because that's, that's, that's literally all that happened. Uh, and then uh, just some of the things in the series that never came to pass, like his ability to manipulate the past from his visions, like he did with Hodor, it just never came into play again. It was a one-shot, one-off thing, and I don't... I don't know why I was in the series, and that just kind of bothers me a little bit. But like I said, you know, for all you people who are really fond of incest now, because you wanted Danny and Jon Snow to be together and have kids, even though Danny can't have kids because you haven't been paying attention, uh, please go check your moral compass because I do believe uh, your north is damaged. So yeah. I'm saying. And I give this I, I, I give this season a uh, an eight out of ten. Uh, it would have been nice to see some more spectacle. I would have loved to see a confrontation between Grey Worm and um, John in there. I think that would have made a, a lot more sense how it went down. But hey, it's over now, and it's a TV show. And that, even though I have a podcast where I talk about movies and TV show, that shit doesn't dictate, dictate my life. And guess what? Nobody. Dr- drove a speedboat into a fucking storm to a hurricane with their sister and then it was a cut to black and then there were a lumberjack at the end of it <laughs> so kiss my ass <laughs> Dexter that's it Dexter. I mean when it boils down to it like I mean how many series finales like going into it knowing it's going to be the end of a series how many of them legitimately are fans actually okay with like Almost got a lot like of shit. Breaking, Dexter, yeah. Dexter got a lot of shit. Well, there were some people upset with Breaking Bad, but I mean, I guess for the most part, it was considered good. A lot of people had problems yep. with the Sopranos. Like yep. so many, so many people have like issues with everything. And to me, when it boils down to it, they can't all be six feet under. Which, if you haven't seen that show, what Please are you doing? I'm watching it right now. No, 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 no. I'm just saying okay. that series finale is hands down the best series finale ever. It is just, it hits, it takes the entire than show. The Wire? Yes, it is better than the Wire oh. season finale. It is hands down the best one. And I won't say what show because you might have seen the ending of it, but there's another very popular uh, NBC sitcom that their series finale steals from Six Feet Under. And a lot of people considered that that sitcom's season finale a good one too. So it's one of those things that like not everything can be that because it takes the entire show and distills it down again into the series finale. So it takes what the entire show has done and then takes it and does it within itself again at the end. And it's so fucking incredible. And it's just one of those things where it just can't always be done. And the way that this show, you know, it's you're always just going to have controversies around a series finale. There's always going to be fans that love it. There's always going to be fans that hate it. You know, there's, there's going to be fans in the middle. There's that's always going to happen with something like this. I think it's just always you end up the bigger the show is. I think the yeah. more people are unhappy with it. 
you know, like Sopranos and, 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 and Lost and Game of Thrones and, and things like that. Just the bigger the show is, the more culturally important it is to everything. It just cannot handle that. You know, they just can't handle the end of it, you know, and for better or worse, that's just always the way it's going to be. I mean, things are always going to be like MASH, which I think still has the record for the most views for a series finale ever. You know, it's you're just going to always end up with these controversial decisions and things like that, because especially nowadays when everything, everything that ever can happen is controversial, you're it's going to be just magnified even more so when something is kind of controversial. So when you have something like the show that the ending is kind of hit or miss with people, it's just magnified even more by the way our culture is nowadays. And I mean, it's, you know, but to have a fucking petition to have, you know, to say HBO, you need to rewrite and refilm everything for a better last season. You're out your damn mind. If you think anyone's even going to take that serious or if you even think that that's fucking necessary, you're just out of your damn mind. Yeah, you are delusional. The I, I I'm yes, I agree. You're a hundred. If you signed that petition, believing that they was going to do anything but make a bunch of rich people laugh at you, then you're delusional. And poor people, I'm laughing at you. <laughs> I'm laughing at you if you signed that petition. That's ridiculous. You can't always get what you want. Oh, this is some Rolling Stones. And what do you want? That's another question. Uh, but I have a question for you guys. Do you guys think that? The advent of reality TV and perpetual TV shows has really not prepared people for series to end. Um, no, I think streaming TV did that hmm. um, yeah. because nowadays there really is just so many shows that shows are just kind of getting canceled sometimes without being noticed. Shows mm. are happening without getting noticed. I mean. HBO that the first season of Game of Thrones wasn't necessarily considered a huge success. It was way more it than they thought it. they were going to get, but it was still not necessarily a huge success. I mean, Game of Thrones grew because of word of mouth, you know, and so for shows like that, I don't think people are prepared for them ending because, you know, even like there are people that started, you know, nine years ago in the first season. And then there are people that, you know, didn't start watching until right before season eight. I know there I know people out there that binged watched everything before this last season just to watch the last season. And that's what I'm saying is I feel like I feel like that's where they're getting the rush from, because if you've been here from the beginning, you know, there's a difference between binge watching a show and watching it as it comes out live. You know what I mean? Like there's just a difference in how you consume that information, how you're able to process that information, you know? And so, and I also think that when you're dealing with like most people watch reality TV now and cooking shows and shit like that, or like law and order, which has never ended. You know, I just don't think that the possibility of a show ending factors into what people say or even a show making it to a series finale like you were saying, because they get canceled so quickly. You know what I mean? So, you know, I just think that people who are not really initiated with TV shows and have seen a lot of series come to an end, I think that's how they react. I mean, when you're watching Real Housewives of Florida or whatever, and you're just waiting for the next iteration something finally ending is probably pretty foreign to you. 
Well, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily blame that because, I mean, reality TV shows come and go, too. To me, it really is the fact that there are just so many TV shows now. Like, a lot of people don't realize that coming to a series finale, like legitimately getting to plan out a final season and ending it on your terms throughout the history of television is a rare, rare thing. More seasons get canceled. More shows get canceled then shows reach a legitimate series finale where they get to just 100% do a full season and plan their end. Like that's a rare, rare spectacle. Very few things get to do that. I will say this more often than not, you actually get those on an HBO and stuff like that. They are a little more willing to let their narratives play out. But just in general, when you look at TV across everything, I mean, how many times do you hear of shows getting canceled and then all of a sudden there's like fan outrage and all this other stuff like it just it rarely ever happens that a show legitimately gets to end on their own terms and in doing so i think that has trained people to like only partially get invested for a few seasons and so by the time like a fourth season happens and then it gets canceled you know people aren't as affected by that they're kind of used to it at this point so now when you get a show that does go five six seven eight seasons and they're ending it the way they want it's it's just so far out of the norm that people don't always know how to take that and i i'm i'm really curious as to how that really breaks down for a lot of things i read an interesting article and i'm going to really shortly summarize this but netflix has built itself to do three seasons of shows the way they do their shows and the way they budget everything that they are all financially viable for about three seasons and unless they are getting ungodly huge amount of numbers in their third season they're very willing to cancel them at that point because that's when they become less financially viable for them so that's why you're getting a lot of netflix shows that are two three seasons and that's it and they're just being canceled because regardless of anything netflix is just very willing to pull that trigger unless it's getting the numbers they want you know because of the way their monetary system is is derived and it's it's just a really interesting thing when you think about it like that's kind of just the mentality of a lot of shows nowadays i mean I've always heard that when you're creating a show, you create it with the idea of five seasons because five seasons is typically the amount of time a show takes to uh, not overstay its welcome and become stale and then people drop off and then you have to end it or where it just doesn't get so huge that ending it becomes a problem, you know? So it's always like the five issue or the five season story arc is kind of what is planned for a lot of things. I think that's what Breaking Bad ended up doing was five seasons and stuff like that and that's and that's what terry gillian wanted from the beginning was that i know the show creator for supernatural wanted five seasons and so after five seasons when cw was like oh no we're going to keep going this is a cash cow he left because that's all the story he wanted to tell and you know if you've ever watched supernatural which is going to end next year on its 15th season which is just ridiculous within itself. Ten That's seasons more than the show. Ten seasons more than the show creator ever thought would you know be viable. Um, it that's a big worry for a lot of people is how is that show going to end and stuff like that but you know it's just it's one of those things that I think TV culture especially nowadays has just set people up and it, it has set shows up to always fail on a series finale because you know just people don't know what to do with it networks don't know what to do with it half the damn time i mean for as big of a show as big bang theory was you know it was considered the number one viewed show in america for years and years and years and years and years it ended 
just within the last couple of weeks. I haven't heard anybody talk about that. And that's insane. Uh, you know, I know that it might be a hit or miss on whether or not people actually like that show, but it was a very watched show. I mean, more people watched it than watched Game of Thrones. And somehow, you know, it ends and after what, 12 years and nobody says a damn thing about it. Yeah. You know, it's just yeah. very weird how things like that go. Did it did it end the same the same week that Game of Thrones did, or did it end the same week that Avengers? No, 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 no. Um, came I, out. Cause, okay. I think it ended. <laughs> it might have ended in between. I just know it ended this year within the last couple of weeks. I stopped watching that show a while. Which back. is what sucks because if it did, yeah. Um, I think that if it did end within that time frame, it sucks because like Game of Thrones, such a huge phenomenon, and Avengers, like both came out around the same time. Um, or started up the last season at the same time as the Avengers Endgame that like pretty much any other entertainment news was kind of like put to the side, which would suck for um, Big Bang Theory. But I was just curious if that's why maybe it didn't get that. I mean, and, and that could be, like I said, I don't remember the specific date in which it, it, it ended, but in, like I said, it was a planned ending too. It was a series finale. It was, everybody was like, we're, we're done with this. Um, and it could be that. And I'm only going to say this because Heather brought up Endgame. Will people quit saying Endgame is the end of the MCU or the MCU ended it, you know, perfectly with Endgame? It's not done. Just view it as a series finale. They're going to keep going. They've got another one coming this year. They're not even they're not even done with phase three yet. Technically, technically, phase three ends with Spider-Man in July. So the MCU yep. is not done. So just do yourself a favor and just don't say that Marvel ended things right with with Endgame because it's not done yet. You, I, I very much understand saying ending story arcs the right way. They didn't. But you can say that they ended story arcs the right way with Endgame. Just don't say they ended things right with Endgame because it's just it's not. I think within the next like three years, we've got like nine more coming out. So just don't don't. Um, I know, I know Justin had put this up on Facebook, uh, uh, about wanting some fan reactions to, uh, Game of Thrones and everything like that. So real quick, Justin, if you can let us know, like, what was some of the things that people were saying when it comes to this final season or just about Game of Thrones in general from your Facebook post? Okay. And some of this, we have just kind of covered with our reactions and things like this. So let me just try to see if I can find maybe something we didn't really touch or just something somebody had a, some bullet points and maybe we could touch on that because he may have brought up some things that we didn't. Let me get to it. I got more responses than I thought on this. <laughs> quite a few. Okay. Found him. Okay. So this is a lot, but I'm going to just try to kind of go through it. Well, actually his, one of his points we didn't touch on. Okay. So this is what he says. And this is from uh, one of our center fans named Tucker. And what he said was um, there weren't enough major deaths in the final season. And I'm not saying that to be edgy or mean. It's just odd that a show that was never afraid to pull its punches decided that the last season was the best time to start. More importantly, these lack of major deaths kind of made the night, the night King a Number A, a threat that had been built since episode one as so big that the Iron Throne was inconsequential in comparison. And Cersei looked like ineffective antagonists since they were unable to kill any of the major characters or anything like that. 
on top of an overabundance of fake out deaths, which Sterling, you did kind of mention that part of it. Uh, BS plot armor, keeping characters alive. Uh, I feel that maybe Arya should have died since by the end of the show, she really had no purpose and literally had a, I don't know, I guess I'll go to an unspecified somewhere type of ending. Hmm. So what do you guys think about that? Not maybe so not so much the Aria stuff, but what about what he's saying about not enough major deaths? I mean, there obviously were deaths. Agreed. But what about the major deaths? Should there have been a major character that died in some sort of way in this? Yes, I agree with him. Tyrion and Brienne of Tarth should have died. Those two should have died. I had my money that Tyrion was dead. Brienne has done as much as she could possibly do. That knighting ceremony and her finally getting to get the that LD, that was the pinnacle of her story. She should have died. Well, and Tyrion <laughs> and, and Tyrion should have died at the hands of Danny, and that would have been a very good way to show that turn. And they could have done it in a pretty smart way. They could have had, you know, him try to rescue um Jamie and he gets caught by soldiers and Danny's like I told you next time you fail me will be the last time I'm going to give you to Cersei so I can get Masande back uh Masande gets killed and then just hot off of that they're like hey I'll give you I'll give you Jamie and I'll give you Tyrion if you give me Masande if not I'm going to kill them both and then you know Cersei goes I don't care man kill those fools I had Bron going to kill Jamie anyway and I hate Tyrion. He can die. And she kills Masande. Danny just flips out, burns Tyrion, and then it just gets down. I think that would have been a great way to, to send that through. Yeah, but then like you said before, that kind of takes away then from other a- aspects of the scene and stuff like that where like the whole Tyrion taking the hand of the the, the queen um, pin and throwing it away and stuff like that and really driving home like him standing up to Danny and taking away those moments of him being one of the most diehard Danny fans and him even disagreeing with how she's handling things. You take away from some of those, those really kind of beautiful character moments for Tyrion by doing that, by showing that, you know, that's how far she had gone is that even somebody who is a diehard Danny fan, who is even talking to, to varies and saying, no, she still needs to be the queen, not John. And still like swinging the other way when it comes to those things. And uh, by the end of it, be like saying that, you know, she was the one I believed in, but she's no longer that person. You really kind of get rid of a lot of those scenes that really kind of still solidified her turn uh, with how crazy things had gone for her. See, but I was just like Varys in there instead of having him die. Uh, this season, I would just switch out their roles. Like Tyrion, in his performance, you could tell he was doubting. Oops, sorry, in his performance, I'm sorry that Tyrion, you could tell throughout the season he was wavering and he was just kind of blind faithing it, which once again doesn't seem like Tyrion to me, but whatever. Um, and so I would switch out Varys in that. 
And I just think Danny needed to kill someone who was major like Tyrion that just would have really solidified how far she had gone to the dark side or how much of a dragon she had become. I think we needed something like that. Maybe the way that I illustrated it is the best way for it to happen. But I think if she would have killed a fan favorite like that, there wouldn't be as nearly as much allegiance to her as there is right now. That's just how I see it, though. I do agree with you with that, though. Maybe, yeah, like you said, maybe the the way you illustrated it isn't the best way. But, dude, if she kills Tyrion, I don't think you would have the kind of backlash for her turn that we got. Like, I think that th- that would have been something, man. Like, if she ki- she needed to kill somebody. You know what I'm saying? You're going to do this big turn to the dark side. She was kind of that final adversary in all of this. Um, And like you said, I don't know if the way you illustrate it is the perfect way. Who knows what the perfect way is? But man, I think you could have sold her a little bit better as the, the, the bad guy if she had killed a fan favorite like Tyrion. I think that would have helped the overall audience just kind of go, okay, Danny's got to go. You know what I mean? If the, if the killing innocent people didn't do it for you, which, you know, <laughs> probably should have. We could argue that all day. But if that didn't do it for you, yeah, killing somebody like Tyrion would have, I think, definitely done it for sure. But at the same time, all you're doing is opening yourself up for the same argument that people had when she burned the city. Like, oh, they that she just killed Tyrion as a plot device. Like, that, that it, it, it still makes no sense. You would still have them say the same things about it. So I don't think you would have had people accept her turn more because of killing Tyrion. I think they would have rejected her turn more because of that. Because it was like, oh, you burned down a city and you killed Tyrion for no reason. That's what I think would have happened is you would have had more people reject the same thing for that. I don't think it would have solidified it. It just it would have solidified her being more evil, maybe. But I don't think it would have solidified people liking it more. Yeah, you could be right. You you t- you totally could be right. I mean, maybe they don't react like that. But in a perfect world, I would have given this more time. You know, also, I wouldn't have done it. In, I wouldn't have killed them in six. You know, I think. You still need more time and other things, but, you know, you could totally be right, though. They they could have still just thrown that in the pile of other things they thought were unbelievable about Danny's turn. So, yeah, that's very possible. Very possible. Yeah, I mean, like, by all accounts, like, if Tyrion had died, it wouldn't have been surprising to me necessarily, especially with the way that last episode went. I'm actually surprised that he did survive. I'm glad that he survived, so I'm not complaining but you're right. Like it just, if that would have happened, it would have, um, I mean, it would have just been a very different story arc, um, altogether at the end there. But I mean, I get it because for me, I was like, man, it doesn't feel like that many people are really, um, dying this season compared to other seasons. But if you think about it, you got Jamie died, Cersei died, um, the, the hound died, um, the mountain died, you know, like all of them actually did die, but I just feel like, um, it wasn't, as shocking just because I think so many people at this point were guessing with this huge battle they knew was coming with the, um, the white walkers and everything. They were already guessing like, okay, most of these people are just going to die. A lot of people survived that. I didn't think where I thought Brian was for sure going to die. I thought gray worm was absolutely going to die and they both survived. So, um, you know, it was just kind of such a guessing game with everybody that it just, I guess it didn't feel like many, you know, 
huge characters died or characters died because a lot of the ones that people thought were going to didn't. But I mean, there were some significant characters that actually really like they died this season, you know, even Danny, obviously, and Varys, like all of them were very significant characters that had been through such a long part of the show. And they all did die. I think they just didn't die in the way that most people expected. And so it didn't feel this satisfying thing or as I guess it just didn't feel as much as like a crazy, like, oh my gosh, moment kind of deaths for them as a lot of the ones in the past seasons had. Yeah. I mean, and all all I'll say to that though, is that's kind of just the way our culture is now also is fan theories. Fan theories are rampant, especially when you get shows like this that are weekly based or movies like Endgame and stuff like that, where there's a lot of time between them. You don't get that on shows that are uh, binge shows. You just get it on these shows that are like, isolated things and like where they do have time between episodes where people just have fan theories and you know with the amount of youtube videos alone on fan theories for game of thrones it's just like like what heather was saying is expectations or what people thought was going to happen or what other people thought was going to happen that you've watched nine thousand youtube videos on it's just one of those things that you end up getting headcanon for certain things you 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 have the mentality of what you think is going to happen built up in your head and you just when it where it doesn't happen, it's for whatever reason or another, a lot of people are disappointed from it. And that's just kind of the way it is. Um, what were you gonna say, Devin? I just wanted to say, um, as far as the shocking deaths, uh, just one other thing. It, it becomes hard to shock no matter who dies after so long. You know what I mean? So I commend Game of Thrones for keeping us on the edge of our seats for eight seasons and guessing who was going to go and stuff like that, because eventually, you know, it just it isn't surprising anymore. So I thought the most surprising thing was, once again, and I don't think that's my purpose, that so many people actually lived when we expected that a whole bunch of people would die. I think that's once again was Game of Thrones flipping the script on us and the creators flipping the script a little bit. But, you know, I guess people don't like the shock of people surviving. I don't know what I don't know what the fuck they want. You can't please these nerds. (laughs) Any. Any last thoughts on Game of Thrones, guys? One of the greatest shows ever is 9 out of 10. True story. Yeah, I agree. One of the greatest shows I've ever seen, that's for sure. Overall, loved it, man. Loved this ride that they took us on. And hopefully this means we'll get other things like this. Maybe uh, an Arthurian legend done well on a TV series. Maybe we can get that. Maybe something kind of like this later on. So hopefully so. You know, hopefully it leads to other great things. There will never be a good Arthurian legend. That's the curse of that. It's kind of like The Great Gatsby. There will just never be a good movie adaptation of it. Well, Excalibur. Excalibur is amazing. But you're right. That's it. Every other author thing has been terrible. But Excalibur was good. Man, if if you could do that with some TV, but give it that, make it have that Excalibur type feel like they cared, I think it could work. But no, normally you're right, though. There's a lot of bad Arthurian stuff. Jesus Christ. Man, Excalibur was just all right. But Game of Thrones is good. So we'll end it on that. All right. Thank you guys for listening. We do know that this was a very, very long episode, but we were covering eight seasons of one of the biggest TV shows to ever happen. So hopefully you guys are understanding of that because, hey, we didn't want to shortchange one of the biggest cultural phenomenons of our lifetime. So we do want to thank you guys for listening. Check us out on cinemaslayers.com, the cinema underscore slayers for Twitter and Instagram. Check us out on cinemaslayers for Facebook. Um, let us know what you guys thought about Game of Thrones. Let us know what you agreed with, disagreed with, or just want to tell us we're stupid about. That's perfectly fine, too. Um, check us out on 
any of those things on any of the podcasting places you want to listen on. If you have a podcast app you prefer it on and you know you don't listen to us on there because you don't think we are on, are on there, check us out. We probably are. And if we're not, let me know. I'll make sure we get added to that. So we do want to thank you guys for listening to all that. And once again, as Jason has stated before, Moon Knight was a Best Picture winner. Yeah.